Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try Onyx Hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs, and that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces, embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat Hunt, the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, we're recording remotely right now from Kerrville, Texas. In a hotel thing, like a very bland, stale hotel meeting room, with the uh, not very bland at all, highly esteemed Dr. Ed Ashby from the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation, who has um, developed lifelong expertise in arrow and broadhead technology. But before we get to him, we got to talk with, uh, with our buddy Jason Phelps, who's been on the show a bunch of times, including some of our most popular episodes ever, when he comes on and explains... Uh, what elk are saying when they make noises, how to mimic those noises, and of course, you know, from Phelps game calls. And you know what, Yanni, what was the uh, um, tell people go how to find that hunt you did with you and Phelps, the YouTube hunt? You can go to Meat Eater's YouTube page and uh, find the latest season of Meat Eater Hunts, and uh, it's the first two episodes, part one and part two. When and I was you can see Phelps, that call in action. When I was talking to Phelps, he's all nervous. He keeps watching to make sure your elk episode. Out in in view metrics, mm-hmm. he doesn't want it to get. It's I guess it's like neck and neck between your meteor hunts mule deer episode and your meteor hunts elk episode. Mm. He wants that one to be number one. Yeah, he's got real strong opinions about why it should be number one, and he thinks squirrel hunting stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> if you make a squirrel hunting one and it whoops that one, that would be time well spent. I've got one planned for this fall, so. Get ready, Jason. Okay, so Jace Phelps, uh, 
why uh, he, he's like, what's wrong with plastic bugle tubes? Why, why did you want to mess around with an aluminum bugle tube? Yeah, up until this point, we had all, all relied on plastic um, to try to get a high pitched. Um, you know, those that are familiar with oak vocalizations, like a bull bugle, gets to a very, very high frequency um, up around like 2,500 hertz. And we've always used plastic and harder plastics to try to get there. Uh, and so the idea came about where, well, if we used an aluminum um, material, we would able to be able to get to that frequency um, maybe better than plastic um, would get there. So nobody had used it. And then the idea of trying to like solve a problem that we had with plastic bugle tubes. The other thing that it did in a roundabout way by being able to get to a higher pitch, we were able to put like a neoprene sleeve on it, which fixes another issue of bigger plastic tubes. Um, they're extremely noisy as you walk through the woods. If you hit a tree, if you hit brush, as they drag through the brush. So by putting the neoprene sleeve on the aluminum, we were able to kind of make a hybrid system that solves a couple of issues. We can maintain the high note, keep it quiet. Um, the end result is a very, very loud beagle tube, louder than I can be on my plastic tube. So it is an effective tool out in the woods where um, I, you know I got a better chance at getting a response from a bull at a further distance. And then we had one shot. We've been also working on attachments called the Easy Bugler mouthpiece and the Flared mouthpiece, and we didn't have the right system to attach those to. And so during this aluminum design process, uh, we were able to design it to accept these attachments, um, which will really assist people that can't put a diaphragm in their mouth to be able to still bugle and be effective out in the woods. And so another thing about the, the, the metal bugle tube is it comes with like a, a mouthpiece, the, which you call the easy bugler mouthpiece, which you make clear is for people that don't want to have, like don't like to have a diaphragm call in their mouth, can't make a diaphragm call in their mouth. Yeah, yeah. So right now, you know, the best way to bugle is to put an internal diaphragm, which consists of a piece of latex, a frame, and some tape to seal the call off in your mouth. And we create our bugles through that. Um, one thing we've noticed over a lot of time, um, talking with a lot of customers, uh, you know, gag reflexes, people that just can't figure out um, how to run the call, their mouths don't work right, you know, on and on. There are reasons why people can't run a diaphragm. And so, what we designed is we've taken our you know, very, very popular amp diaphragm, taken the tape off and then created a seal inside of an external um, attachment. And all you have to do is put your bottom lip over the small air opening and blow. Uh, there is a little bit of, of skill involved, but it, it's, it's, you know, at 10% of being able to run a, an internal diaphragm, you literally just have to put your lip over the bottom hole apply, you know, different pressures and blow through it to, to achieve an, a, a bull beagle. So it's very easy and, and it solves a lot of issues that people have at running a diaphragm. So I, I want you to compare what these different things sound like. So take one of your regular diaphragms and hold it up to the aluminum beagle tube and rip, right? And then go ahead and crank one out with the mouthpiece and, and maybe do whatever back and forth. You know, so people can hear the difference between what they're what you're getting with the diaphragm and what you're getting with the easy bugler mouthpiece, which you really just like kind of put your mouth over and, and, and blow. Yeah. So we've taken the this tube had the easy bugler on it. So we've switched over to the flared attachment, which is meant for diaphragm collars, and uh, we'll give it a little go. So yeah, that's a diaphragm. It, it's got great back pressure. It's easy to run and uh, it's got great sound. So we just went ahead and took the flared mouthpiece off, um, snapped the easy bugler on, 
and we'll give it a give it a go. So one thing I can tell um, by blowing it in my office here versus the first one, and, and you may not be able to tell since we're going over the phone, Steve, is that uh, this is extremely loud. Um, that Easy Bugler was, I don't know if it's 50% louder, but it, it's definitely louder. And it's its it, its evident by what my ears are feeling right now that that Easy Bugler is louder. And, and I'm a loud diaphragm caller, but I cannot get the same volume out of a diaphragm as I can that Easy Bugler mouthpiece. So like I had mentioned earlier, I don't want to be a, a broken record, but it, it's got some good utility out in the woods for an elk hunter trying to get something to respond. Yeah, there's a like there's a marked difference in the volume and how, how well it carries. So you either gonna elk are gonna hear it better, or other dudes are gonna know you're there and move away. Either way, it's win win. All right, man. Um, we will talk to Jason soon. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys have fun in Texas, and we'll see you guys soon. Doctor Ed Ashby. Big time researcher in arrows and broadheads. Wow. Ashby Bowhunt <laughs> Foundation, right? But not, yeah. you don't have a doctorate in that. You got a doctorate in eyeballs, right? Yep, that's it. That's right. Like yep. a military doctor? I was in the military, yep. Spent uh, almost 10 years in the Air Force, then changed over to the public health service. Uh, worked out on the Indian reservations for a number of years. Then I was in the area office, covered seven states up in Minnesota, that area up in there. And, then I ran the eye care program nationwide for the Federal Bureau of Prisons my last four years. Oh, really? So I did uh, 26 years with the government. Long enough. <laughs> and then you went off to Africa. I retired, liquidated everything I had in the States, moved to Africa. Got it. Got into, then, you, then you got into the broadheads and arrows. Well, actually, I was doing stuff like that long before. Uh, I got involved with uh, the Natal study uh, back in 84. And uh, by pure accident, pure good luck. Good luck has seemed to follow me the whole time. I was, uh, I had written over trying to see if I could uh, hunt a rhino with bow and arrow. And no, it wasn't legal, couldn't, couldn't do it. And then when what gave you the idea that you should have should have to even ask somebody to if you could shoot a rhino with a bow and arrow or who did well, you write well, to? Well, I, I wrote to the game department there in South Africa, mm -hmm. asking about it. And then when they decided they wanted to look at archery and see about legalizing it uh, there in the Tall Province, they were having a meeting, sitting around talking about you know how they were going to set this up, how they were going to do it, what animals they're going to shoot. And they got talking about the big animals, what, you know, how big an animal could you take and stuff. And somebody there, and I, I still don't know which one of them, said, you know, somebody wrote me two or three years ago uh, asking about hunting a rhino. So I think I've still got the letter. Went and looked in their files. They did. Contacted me and said, you still want to come try to shoot a rhino with a boy and air? <laughs> Took me about 10 seconds to say yes. And uh, so, you know, we set that up. I went over. I did the rhino hunt. Well, while I was there and talking to them and stuff, and shot a few other animals on that trip, uh, they said, look, said, this is what we're doing, and we're looking at if we want to legalize this. I said, would well, you like to come back next year? So let's repeat the rhino, and then you bring as many different broadheads as you can lay your hands on, and we'll go into Macuzzi Park, and before the rifle cull, we have to cull animals every year. And we will shoot as many animals as we can shoot. 
and we want to, you know, take a look at the effectiveness. And what we turned out doing is they literally want us to take any shot that we thought we could make because they wanted to look at what happened when you made bad shots with different arrow setups and so forth. And so we went in there and uh, I think shot 154 animals in 30 days in, in uh, Makuzi. Uh, but we were backed up with a rifle for that so that if you shot an animal and you weren't sure it was going to be a lethal hit, they would put it down with a rifle immediately somewhere remote from where the arrow was so that we could dissect the animal and look and see what the air had done, make a determination, would it have been lethal, would it not? Um, you know, what happened? Why was it not lethal? Um, and if we couldn't determine, they had a couple of veterinarians on staff that we could take the animal back in to their shed there, the veterinarians would dissect them and tell us exactly what they found, if, you know, and make a determination, would it have been a lethal hit, would it not? Uh, it was a rather interesting experiment. Uh, it's rare to get an opportunity to do that. All the later research we had to do on freshly culled animals. But uh, all of that initial was done on live animals, and most of it was on, uh, oh, we did a few zebra and kudu and inyala, impala, warthogs. Uh, most of that initial study was done on smaller animals other than the rhinos. And uh, What happened when you shot the rhino? They died. How quick? Uh, they went a pretty good distance. The first one probably covered, I would say, a, probably at least a half mile. Mm -hmm. But we have much better air setups now than we had then. Then I'm working with no knowledge of, of what's going to make the most effective air setup. All I could go on was a little bit of historical data that was. And nobody had shot a white rhino. He's twice as big as a black rhino. He's 6,000 pounds instead of 3,000. Uh, there had been a couple of people shoot black rhinos. Um, Bill Nagley had shot one, and uh, Bob Swinehart had shot one. Uh, and, of course, Howard Hill didn't do a rhino, but he'd done elephant and stuff like that. So I had to draw on what I could find in their writings to try to devise an error. And uh, I actually designed a different error for the second time around. It was a one-era kill, and uh, it went a little bit further. It was a rather exciting story on him. So I shot him from, from six feet away, or seven feet, excuse me, away, hmm. from my footprints to his with no rifle backup. And so it was, uh, after, that's the only animal that's ever shaken me up after it was over. What was going on as calm as could be. And after I shot him, I shook like a leaf. Did it know where you were standing there? Well, it was a, a, an old bull that had actually been dehorned. He was actually bigger than the first rhino, which was huge. Uh, it lived in this one valley. And so we were trying to take off only these old bulls, but no longer breed. And every time we would see him, he would go out and he'd go through this mountain pass. Well, we'd gone out that morning. We'd dropped uh, all the trackers off on fresh tracks to go look and see what kind of rhino it was, which rhino it was. Uh, see if it was one we were going to go after or not. And there was just Chris Freeman and I left. Uh, he's one of the game, game, war, game rangers there. And uh, we came to that big basin. Look, there was that bull down there again. And Chris said, okay. Now, he's done this to us several times. He said, I'll give you 45 minutes or so. He said, you go around to that, that 
cut he's going out in. He'll probably go out the same way. Then I'll try to stalk him real slow and easy, just like we have. And, and he'll probably push right out through there. And I did. So I went up to that draw, and it kept getting narrower and narrower. And it's real steep bank, like 60 degree on both sides. And as you got right up to the end of it, it opened up into a big wide area. But there at the end of it, there's two trails. There's one that's about three feet up on the side and one down in the bottom. And I looked, and all the tracks are on the bottom. So I said, well, there's nowhere else to go. I got to stand on this upper track. And so I get up standing there, and I'm waiting and waiting. Pretty soon I hear rocks rolling, rocks kicking. I'm sitting there, and I'm all ready. And I cut my eyes around, and he's about 20 yards from me on the upper trail. And he comes on, and he gets about 15 yards or so from me, and he drops down to the lower trail to come out. And he walks by me as close as across this table. And, and they're big. You know, he's more than six and a half feet at the shoulder. So you know, we're, we're right there together. And I got nowhere to go. You know, there's, I can't climb this bank, can't run out that way, can't run that way. And is a rhino, sorry, I don't even know, is a rhino known to, like, cause problems with humans? Like oh, if, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they kill several people there, yes. I see. There, where we were hunting, they had, they had killed several, including one of the game rangers had been killed by one. Stomping on them. Well, goring them and stomping on them, yeah. yeah. Most of they just hit you and toss you around a little, which hey, is enough. You know, can, can you, I want to, also want to back way up and talk about when you were a kid, but um, before I do that, you mentioned him being dehorned. The second one. So at dehorned. some point, someone tranquilized him and cut his oh, horn yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you explain what you were explaining to me last night when we were having dinner about the, the, deal, with, the deal with rhinos that can't breed? Yeah, the, the, the whole thing with rhinos is that they will live, the bulls will live, uh, way past their breeding age, but they will hold a territory. Now, years ago, when there was all of Africa to roam on, there's no problem. You push off, find new territory. But now there's people everywhere with little islands of animals scattered around Africa. So they have a limited habitat. So unless you go take these old bulls off, the younger bulls can't establish a territory. If they have no territory, they will not breed. How big is their territory? Big? So that, yeah, pretty big. Yeah. So they have to have a lot of area. And uh, as long as that dominant bull is holding the territory, nobody gets to breed if he's past his breeding age. Does he still think he can breed? He's just shooting blanks? or No, he... yeah, he's, he's still shooting blanks. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he's now a sterile animal. Yeah. And uh, he will live another 10 or 12 years holding that territory. So no breeding's going to go on in that territory that he controls. So one way around that is cut his horn off and he can't defend it as well. Uh, no, they cut it off. To, they cut the horns off to keep the poachers from killing them. It oh. doesn't work. The, the poachers will kill them for a nub of a horn. You have to keep cutting it off just right down to skin level. And even if it's cut down to skin level, they follow it up, find a dehornment, they shoot it so they don't ever, ever have to track it again. Yeah. So the poachers are a major problem. And that's one of the nice things with the hunting program in there is that the rhinos are so expensive to hunt. They have a huge monetary value. So that monetary value is both to the, the people that are on the land because a portion of that money, if you're hunting on uh, one of the campfire areas, something like that, is going to the local population. 
And, of course, the meat's going to all go to them, too. Or if it's a private landowner, which a lot of them are on private ranches and so forth, it's a huge amount of money to him. So they actually hire game scouts out of their own pocket to go out and try to keep the poachers under control. But if that animal didn't have that economic value, they're not going to lay out all that money to hire game scouts to go out and mm-hmm. try to control the poachers. You've uh, you've eaten rhino and hippopotamus and oh, elephant yeah. and all that? Yeah. Does it all look like deer meat? Like, what's it look like? Uh, no, actually, the, the white rhino is a grazer. He eats only grass. And, uh, and the hippo, same thing. They're, they're both grazers. And it's very much like uh, range beef, grass-fed beef. All right. It, it's very, very similar meat and excellent meat, excellent eating. Uh, you also mentioned last night that we were talking about uh, bullfrog hunting. Yeah. And you said you grew up poor yep. and hunted for meat. What was that all about? Like, what were the circumstances when you were growing up? Well, you know, my brother and I, we, we just thought it was great fun. But uh-huh. uh, we were basically feeding the family. And you just didn't realize it. So we hunted all the time. And uh, Dad was a, he, he was an NRA rifle instructor. And uh, so we, you know, I shot competition in my first match when I was five years old. And uh, he used to, when we were small, and I've actually still got the 22, it was a 521T Remington, a real small little match rifle. Uh, he'd, he'd give us one 22 shell. And you go out, if you kill something, bring it back in, you can have another shell. <laughs> you can hunt all day. First time you miss, you're through for today. You can go back tomorrow. Start all over again. What would you guys hunt for? Anything that moved. <laughs> yeah. Where where was that? Where did you grow East up? East Texas. East Texas. Yep. Yep. And you and you started in on bow hunting early. Yeah, uh, real early. I shot I mean my, like both early in terms of your age but also early in terms of Oh yeah, bow hunting. Uh, like my dad always talked like you know he started bow hunting in the 50s, you know. Yep. And there weren't even uh, bow seasons and yeah, stuff back yeah, then. Oh, yeah, there, there weren't. There weren't any special bow seasons early on. And there were only two of us in the whole county that uh, that shot a bow. Me really? and the guy I ended up hunting with, he was a World War II vet named James Hayes. And uh, we, we could shoot a bullfrog and, and get a picture on the front page of the paper. I mean, big picture. <laughs> <laughs> this is big time. Because uh, people were just unfamiliar with it. Oh, yeah. And, and we did a lot of varmint calling and stuff. And uh, James shot a bobcat one night. And, Lord, it took up the whole front, of the, front page of the paper. Stories about, because a lot of people didn't know we had bobcats in East Texas. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so it was great fun. And then uh, we'd come down and we'd deer hunt. And then when they did get a deer season going, um, Bob Lee uh, had a, a lease that he established, the first bow hunting only lease in Texas at Wheelock. And we hunted on that lease there with, uh, with Bob Lee. When you say the first established, they were like the first guys that thought to go pay for hunting access. No, no, people paid for that, but it was a lot cheaper than it is now. I mean, when I was... Yeah, because you could go back yeah. in time and, and, and rub that guy out. Yeah, well, when I was about... Maybe it would have never become a thing. Yeah, seven or eight <laughs> years old, we would come down to this area, Rock Springs, Lano, Marble Falls, all through there. Our lease, year-round lease, was $10. <laughs> so we'd come down, we'd fish, we'd squirrel hunt, we'd turkey hunt. So that, that was a whole year-round lease was $10. Huh. So it's changed a good bit. <laughs> now, even back then, were you interested in, uh, I mean, I'm sure you were interested, but when did, when did you first start getting interested in, like, tinkering with, well, I, tinkering I, with archery equipment? Oh, uh, what really got me interested in it was uh, 
when Howard Hale made the movie Timba, he toured the United States doing, going to schools, doing shooting exhibitions to let people know there's the movie in town. And, and I got to see Howard Hill shoot. And uh, things they wouldn't let you do now. You know, we are all in the auditorium there. And, and the opening thing was the target's up on the stage, and he comes through the doors to the back and shooting arrows over everybody's head <laughs> into the target <laughs> up on stage. And that was back in the day where he'd have assistants, you know, hold stuff and shoot it out of their hands and put it on the head and shoot it off their head. <laughs> So they would go nuts with stuff like that now. Wasn't it uh, Burroughs, William, was it William Burroughs that shot his wife trying to shoot apples off her head? Oh, goodness, I do not know. Yeah, you know, Tropic, Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn <laughs> author. Wasn't that him? They got to drinking one night. Uh, <laughs> so that guy, like his big deal was he went, he was the first guy to shoot a, I don't know about the first. See, that's the weird part about it. Like the first guy to shoot a elephant mm. with a bow. But there's research now that suggests that the bow had been invented. Oh, perhaps, you know, I know they, they say the bow and arrow was invented multiple times around the world, correct? Yeah. Like independently. But perhaps a way long time ago in Africa. Oh, somebody probably killed some. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you do have... Uh, you know, tribes there uh, in East Africa that, like the Hadza and so forth, uh, you know, they hunt with poison arrows. Okay. But uh, historically, as far back as people can remember, uh, they would build these deep cuts into the banks going down to the rivers so that hippo and elephant could go down there and they could stand above them and shoot them as they came through the, these cuts. And, and who knows how far back that goes. Mm-hmm. And a lot with poison arrows. Now, those poison arrows sometimes, you know, it might take them 48 hours to die. But they follow, just follow the animal till he dies. Yeah, there's an old documentary I've seen. Oh, you've probably seen it. Where these, these boys go out and uh, stick a giraffe with a poison arrow. In the documentary, uh, a friend of mine, was she's an anthropologist, and she was doing work in Africa, and she sent this thing to me. Um, and they just spend a couple of days trailing after it. Eventually yeah. gets pretty sick. Yep, that's basically what they did. Yeah, kind of stands there yep. sweating and convulsing and whatnot, and they could finally go in and kill it. But they stuck with it for days. Well, that's man. why you have great, great trackers. And, of course, the best trackers that are left are probably probably the Bushmen and the Hadza, these tribes that hunt with, uh, with the uh, poison arrows. Uh, there's not a lot of great trackers left in Africa. There's some. Uh, they would be great by our standards because very few people in this country can track <laughs> anything. They mm. have trouble tracking something through the snow. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really pretty sad. But some of the – I've had the opportunity to work with some trackers that were just unbelievable. Uh, that literally could track animals across what looked like bare rock. Now, I'm a pretty fair tracker. But they would, they would draw a circle. It says, it's right here. And they would explain what they're seeing, and I still couldn't see it. And I'm not a bad tracker. Yeah. Uh, some of them are just, uh, it, it seems superhuman. It really does. But there's not many of those trackers left. Did you get into medical school through the military? No. Drafted. I was drafted in the last draft we ever had in the United States, special draft called 44. 
All it, medical people. Yep. Okay. Is that one of the ones where they start drawing numbers and it matches up to your last name and whatnot? About the only thing I ever won in my life was a draft lottery. <laughs> <laughs> and they, so they drafted you, but you were already a med student. I was already out of school. Oh, I got you. Yeah. So I was deferred from the draft while you're in school. And then got out and, okay, uh, your number's up. <laughs> yeah. Did, that, did all that knowledge of anatomy and everything uh, that you were trained in when you were in school, did that all, do you think that that led you to start becoming interested in aerolethality? Uh, no, I was always interested, you know, we were a hunting family. And I mean, common topics would be terminal ballistics of cartridges and bullets and things like that. And even from the very start, we'd shoot an animal and, uh, you know, dad would want us to dissect it to see what the bullet did, recover the bullet if we possibly could, and so forth. And I got into bow hunting and uh, didn't think a whole lot about it, uh, really, until uh, I'd been hunting 25 years or so, and all with traditional equipment. And I decided, oh, okay, it was about 1980, that I'm going to get a compound now. You know, everybody's talking about compounds and the amount of improvement you had in the bow and how accurate you could be with it and everything. So I read what I could find in the magazines and this, that. Bought into it whole hog. Got, uh, it was a Darton uh, compound. And, you know, got some light arrows and some multi-blade replaceable blade broadheads. So and they had those even in 1980. Oh yeah, they had replaceable yeah. broadheads were already a thing. The replaceable blade heads were oh yeah, very common then. Yeah, the and was it I'm trying to remember like some of the ones. Satellites. Oh yeah, yeah, satellites, satellites had thunderheads. Yeah, that's what, I remember having a thunderhead yeah, patch yeah, yeah. on my jacket. Yeah. And what was the one that had six blades? Uh Razorback. Razorback. Yeah, yeah. They, had Razor, that sort they had a five that, and a six. Razorback yeah. five, Razorbacks had like that plastic. Yeah. yeah. Had kind of that plastic cone. Yeah, wing, wing on the front. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. The first... Hey, can I interject just real quick? My It'll drive my dad nuts if we don't in- introduce our other two guests oh, oh. here real quick. Sure. You can just introduce yourself. Tell us what, what you do I just in go 10 ahead, seconds. Uh, Todd Smith. I'm with Grizzly Stick. <laughs> Garrett Schleif. Uh, I'm the owner of Grizzly Stick. Arrows and ha- we've been working with Doc on his research for... Oh, a long time. 15, 20, 15, 20, 20, more than 20 years. So, you know, starting with your dad, more starting, than 20 years. Starting back with two generations of working on this stuff. And we were kind of the first guys to really look at what yeah, he was building. Really. Was from- and then try to build equipment following what, what he was doing. So we didn't really have a roadmap. It was just more yeah, of... Yeah, and we were learning as we went. Well, I mean, we were still... Learning lots of, we've learned a lot since and we, we and first we, started. And we still are. I mean, it's, it's, still it's are. constant. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Yep. So yeah. when you, uh, was your first, was that deal when you went to shoot the rhino and in South Africa was toying with getting a bow season? Yep. What year were they thinking about doing that? And they, uh, ultimately, they ultimately did it, right? We, we went 84 and 85. I shouldn't say a bow season. Le- they were going to legalize, legalize bow hunting. Yes. Yeah, but other. And, co- I mean, then, it, it's it's surprising to me that they even had at that time. A lot of countries in Africa probably didn't. They well, probably hadn't prohibited it because they just didn't have the, any the only regulations. Places you could legally hunt were places that were silent on on ways and means. It's yeah. the only place you could legally bow hunt. Yeah, that law in South Africa was the first affirmative bow hunting law in Africa in, in eighty six. 
So prior to that, prior they, to that, they had spelled it, out what illegal. There was no place that it said it's legal to bow hunt. Got you. So if you want to like bow that, hunt, like, you can like go. The, if you look at look at those early hunts that everybody did, like Bob Swinehart and Howard Hill, uh, they did them up in Kenya, which was still open then, uh, Tanzania, and Mozambique. Mm-hmm. All places that were silent. That's no like where that like the Adelaide crowd, yeah, drifts off to Alaska. Yeah, or that dude that wanted to kill a bear with a spear, like yeah. he went somewhere and then they yeah, then, go to Mississippi. Then after yeah. they did that, they clarified it that in fact you can't kill a bear with a spear. And yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. So South Africa was the first place in Africa to decide right. to do an yeah, archery after we did all to the decide research to like formally and legalize stuff together it. and presented it all to the uh, Parks Board. Uh, they legalized bow hunting and then it just dominoed. Uh, you know, then it was Zimbabwe and it was Zambia and it was Namibia and it just went on and on. Because they were afraid of losing business. Oh, yeah. Well, once they say, hey, you know, these people are getting this bow hunting money in. So, you know, they're making foreign, you know, forex is coming in. Uh, let's get on the bandwagon here and get some of this. When you uh, earlier mentioned getting into compound bows and you get, you said like you bought in, oh, yeah. you used the term like bought into all that. Bought into all what? Uh, to, to the light, fast arrows, you know, and uh, what, I had Beemans. Remember the little skinny Beemans? And uh, that year, I hit and lost four deer. I had never done that. So I said, something's wrong. So I did what I would have done with a rifle. I said, you know, let's research. The, somebody has got to research what works, what doesn't, other than just reading a magazine and, seeing what, you know, the companies are advertising and stuff that's being pushed. So I was looking for stuff like Chamberlain's work with rifles and, you know, some, some honest research. Nothing. It didn't exist. So I decided, okay, I'm going to have to find out for myself. Now, this was about, you know, early 80s, before the Natal thing came up. So I was already started doing stuff and looking at what was happening. Before the Natal thing, well, the Natal thing just really kick-started me. Now I had a database. I mean, we had to really collect data to do these reports for the Natal Parks Board. Well, by the time we did the Natal study, I had more questions than I did when I started that. And I found that all the way through 26 years of research is every time I do a new set of tests, I end up with a new set of questions of things to look at. And I'm still not through. That's why we established the foundation. Because after I hurt my back, I can't do anymore. Uh, so somebody had to take over. And it's, you're not going to find many idiots like me. I did all of mine out of my own pocket. Every arrow, every broadhead, every feather, everything was purchased by myself. I wanted to stay independent of the archery industry, which we still do. We do not take donations from archery companies, things like that. Yeah, notice on your, on your boy's website, the Grizzly Stick website, there's a note on the bottom that says, because uh, you have an Ashby broadhead. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. But a note on the bottom says, you won't take any money no. from that broadhead? Nope. Not even a little bit. Nope. <laughs> that was a hard. That was part of the agreement. That was part of the agreement. You have to, to get tell it. everybody in the world. They had to agree to that, or I, I wouldn't let them yeah. use my name on it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not and, that and, smart, but I got. The, I was like, that sounds like a pretty good deal. For yeah. Us. Yeah. 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 The other covenants on there. Was, you didn't feel compelled uh, to argue with no, him about no, it. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other covenant was when we do the testing, if the broadhead works, yeah, you can use my name on it. Yeah. With a disclaimer that 
I don't receive any funds out of it. Because it, unless you stay totally independent of industry, your research is tainted. And there's a lot of stuff out there, a, a lot of wound loss studies that were financed by the archery industry that come up with these incredibly low wounding rates by archery standards. They're showing 11%, 14%. All of the studies that were independently done by game departments all show almost a one-to-one -one ratio. Yeah. I, I would say I would say with in I would say with elk in America I definitely say that that's the case. I think it is with just about everything, and I guided while I was in Africa. I did quite particularly when there's bow hunters. I, I was sort of a freelance guide, so you know if they had too many clients, I would go in, or if they had bow hunting clients because there was almost nobody over there doing anything about bow hunting, then I would go in and work with whoever with their bow hunting clients, and I would say it's definitely at least one to one. In Africa. With the equipment that people were bringing and using, yet you can cut it down to almost nothing. As I got towards the better era systems, uh, I, out of the last 25 years where I have actual records tracking the animals that I've killed, there's 627 animals, four lost animals, four. I, I get that, but like it has so much to do with. Ask your question about consistency, Yanni, because it has so much to do with like, did you punch a hole through its heart? Like, if you're if you're a very good archer taking very close shots, you're going to have a very high recovery you, rate. You you can't really always do that. I, I was a ground hunter. Now, I've shot a few animals out of tree stands up, but very few. Stalker. Now stalkers don't necessarily get set up shots. Mm -hmm. Now my whole goal from the get-go, was to find the most effective arrow system you could possibly use. Because a lot of the shots I took were shots that they're not broadside shots. You know, they're long quartering shots, facing you shots, mm. moving animals. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, I mean, we shot a lot of moving targets. Animals just as big moving as he is standing still. Target size is still the same. So I didn't have too much trouble at all shooting moving animals. Now, we used to do a lot of bird hunting and stuff, flying birds. Uh, Willard Bow didn't hit a lot of them, but you got a lot of practice. Running rabbits in front of dogs. And you can get pretty good on running shots. Uh, good enough to shoot big animals. A big animal actually gets pretty easy after you, you know, practice on stuff like that. Nobody does that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, and, and a lot, you know, there were some things in there that uh, I didn't have a lot of animals that were gut shots. I've never lost a gut shot as I got into these better era setups. But a lot of that's careful management of, of after the shot, of leaving it long enough, of stalking the trail, you know, and, and not spooking, just like you're hunting the animal again mm. to find it. And most of the time, if you give them 8, 10, 12 hours, they're dead. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever had one go beyond about 160 yards when I didn't pursue him. He feels bad. He lays down. You give him time, and he will bleed out. There's a lot of, think of your digestive system. There is a lot of blood vessels in there carrying away all this digested food, nutrients, and so forth. And the single bevel heads that rotate actually will wind intestines up around them. 
and you get a thing called a starburst cut. Now, I didn't know this until I was doing a lot of the research, but you'll get cuts that are five or six inches away from the path where the arrow went through, where it's wound stuff up around it and made all these little cuts. And I was doing that by taking dye in a syringe and injecting it into the intestines and looking at the, where the dye is coming out. Hmm. And so you get these huge starburst cuts in mobile tissues. Now you get some of that effect even in lung tissues where it just almost liquefies the lungs, just mushes it up. And I've got a lot of photos of deer that you will look at and think they were shot with a rifle because of the amount of bloodshot tissue. You do not get that with double bevel heads. Let's save uh, the double and single bevel. You, you want to get into that right now? No, I want to get into grains. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, explain well, the. Are we there yet? Are, have we covered off on enough of like how we how Doc did the studies? No. Okay. But for people that aren't real familiar with arrow setups, mm, that's true. I think that when he's talking about arrow setups, I think people need to know what he's talking about. That's true. That's true. Um. It's an arcane uni unit of measurement, but explain what a grain is, because you're going to talk a lot about grains. Well, it is a unit of measure, and there's 7,000 grains to a pound. What is that based off? Just counting up powder grains? Well, uh, not counting grains, but that's where the unit of measure works out. That's what a grain is. Yeah, but it's got to be. One seven thousandth of a pound. Yeah, but it's got to be. It's an English measurement. I know, but it's no got to be something like some dude took a pound some dude took a pound of like granulated powder or something. No, no, it no, came from no. actual like seeds or seeds. like millet or okay. whatever. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what yeah, it was. Yeah, I don't but... remember which one of the seeds, but it is yeah. a unit that came from. Yeah, like a well, foot. It was or... like about as long as your foot. Yeah, yeah. So that's where all these weird English stuff comes from is, you know, what's a cloth yard? What's a foot? What's a yard? Yeah. You know, there's a Clay Newcomb, uh, our colleague. He was telling me there's an old unit of measurement called an eel. I don't no know how kidding. it's spelled. No, oh, and it's yeah, no, it's a this. deer neck. It's a sack made out of a. It's a sack made from a deer's neck. Tanned. <laughs> and you would and they would put uh, how you, much you, you would sell tallow. You would sell tallow in it, and it would be an eel. We're trying to start a cryptocurrency called. <laughs> we're trying to start a cryptocurrency called Bear Grease. And it's going to trade in eels. <laughs> That'd be good. Bear grease useful stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, we got a whole plan for this cryptocurrency, man. Yeah, it's going to blow yeah. Bitcoin out of the water. <laughs> uh, okay, so 7,000 grains to a what – can you give it in like fractions of – convert it to metric, or, or don't you know how to do that in top of your head? 400 and – what is it, 30-something – to the grains to a gr gram gram it's something like yeah, that four, it's 430 something okay i can't remember exactly what point uh let's say the point being this most broadheads today most like when you go online and buy broadheads um you'll hit a little drop down menu mm -hmm. and it's virtually certain that they're going to be available in the 110s and 125s 110 100 100 was it one, 100s and 125s yeah, if there's yeah, any if there's those, those if, are if, common. They, if they got two that'll be the two right yeah um and those are what i mean they're they're not an ounce no fractions of an ounce yeah and then the arrow 
explain arrow weight like a, like a like you're like what would be the most like currently today most guys going into their archery shop and buying arrows for a contemporary compound setup or buying arrows and and what what would you say is 350 to 425 okay is about where they're going to be and that is people maximizing speed well speed has been pushed Kinetic energy has been pushed mm-hmm. to get kinetic energy because the formula squares the velocity. It looks really good. It sells speed sells, and the industry has pushed this stuff since the 1950s, when the Allen compound first came out, and then the Jennings compound, and and uh, those were the first of the compound bows, and uh, they were so much faster than traditional bows. And then as they got them faster and faster and faster, this is what people buy. I met a guy at the archery range when I was out tuning arrows in Australia who had just bought a new bow because this new bow was four feet per second faster than his old bow. He spent $1,200 on this bow to get four feet per second, Mm -hmm. which is not going to make a bit of difference. It's the arrow that kills. I'd be much happier to go out here and there's an old Indian saying. Yeah, but it's the arrow that kills, but it doesn't kill laying on the ground. You, you have to propel I mean, it. You have to once, propel. It, once it's in flight, it didn't know what launched it. It Correct. could care less. But damn sure knows how fast it's going. It knows how fast it's going and how much force it's got, but it doesn't take as much as you think it does. No. To get it to perform. But I mean, it's you, still, it still has got to be moving. It's got to be moving. Moving one mile an hour isn't going to do it. Well, you, so there's a point, at, I mean, there, there's an argument to be made for it moving really fast. Well, there's an mar- argument to be made for not moving fast. Let's say it's moving at light speed. No, <laughs> the, the, the resistance quadruples as the speed doubles every time. The example is go down the road at 30 miles an hour okay. and stick your hand out the window and feel the resistance. Now go 60 and feel the resistance. Yep. Now go 90 and feel the resistance. It goes up as the square of the velocity increase. So you get at 90, you got nine times the resistance you have at 30. Yeah. One of the things we're finding, because we get all this data back in from thousands of hunters, you know, over 2,200 buffalo shot now, and over 100 elephant uh, with these arrow setups. We're seeing more pass-through shots with bows sub 70 pound than we are with heavier draw weight bows. Now that's one of the things we're going to research. Something's happening. We don't know what, but it's a significant difference in the number of pass through shots. Is it the tissue resistance going up at the higher velocity? Like, is it more flexion on the shaft or the shafts not stiff enough to handle the impact at the higher force? You know, what, what is it? we got to find out. That's, that's one of the things on our list of research. Okay, Yanni, ask all about the research now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, there's a lot of questions right now. Because I think you just very quickly, because numerous times now you've said, like, the arrow setups that we're using now. Yes. So we sort of, Steve laid out what, the, what like, a contemporary, you know, in, in this crowd seems to be an insufficient arrow setup. So explain what the what a sufficient arrow setup is now that you, what we're talking about. And then also on the heels of that, tell me when when all these other archers are sending in this information and data points. I want to know like, is it just like a 
phone call and they're sort of giving you like the anecdotal story of what happened or is it literally they have a form no, that, you, that they fill out for I, you? I, I've tried having other people collect form data. I've uh -huh. out the forms and stuff. And it, you can't get people to do it. It's a lot of work. Right. They just won't do it. it it's just too much. Pictures. Uh, we ask for yeah, pictures. You, you get pictures. You get, we get a lot of dissection pictures, though, people. I try to push that. If I could get every hunter, every bow hunter, to just dissect the animals he shoots and look at what has happened. But more importantly, if he'd ever get the chance to dissect the unsuccessful shots, to find out when they, why they fail. That's where you really learn something. Yeah. Successful shot doesn't tell me much. But anytime there's an unsuccessful shot, it gives you an opportunity to find out what happened. Why did it fail? And that's really where you learn to develop these better error systems. If I take what I like to call a penetration maximized error and put it against what I would consider a good error, better than what most people are shooting today, I can more than triple the penetration. That's 15 inches instead of 5 or 30 inches instead of 10. That's a big difference in penetration. We've got people out there with women with, with low 40-pound compounds getting five and six feet of penetration on things like Edelin on quartering shots. Uh, it's incredible. Explain the arrow setups that they're using. Those, those arrow setups are very high FOC because most of them are short draw. Tell people that FOC? Would, would normally be 30% or more. With the arrow setups that they're using. No, explain forward the acronym. center balance. Oh, the point. FOC? Yeah. That's the weight forward to center. And uh, we actually established a bunch of those because traditionally you had, you know, a low FOC and a normal FOC, which was, you know, eight or nine percent, and then a high one, which was 15 to sometimes as much as 18 percent. And as I got into the research, I had to develop some names for other stuff. So we went into extreme FOC which is from 19 on up to 30. And above 30, we call ultra-extreme. Now, the reason I come up with those names it, was... It, real quick, just explain the percentages you're talking about. That's how much the weight, the balance point of the error is forward uh, of the center of the error. I see. The physical center. Yeah, but how do you... How, I don't understand how it's reflected in percentages and not... It, it's, the, it's, it's the percentage that it is forward of the center. And then you count from the knock to the front of the broadhead? No. Or is it just the shaft? You, you can use, there, there are both methods are used, but the uh, AMO standard is from the throat of the knock to the end of the shaft. Got it, okay. Does not include the head. Yep. So you're not and talking, I, about, you're, you're not talking about the one. overall setup, you're talking about the arrow right. itself. Yeah. I prefer that one because if you take the same arrow and you put a feel point on it and a broadhead on it, they're going to be different lengths. Sure. And you're coming up with different FOC percentages. Yeah. The FOC we measure is a relative term, just like the static spine of an error. It does not tell you much dynamically. FOC actually is an aeronautical term, and it's how far the center of gravity is from the center of pressure of an object in flight. Hmm. So we've just used that, picked it up in archery, yeah. because it gives us a, a rough idea. Now, with it works the same way with a plane. The higher the FOC with the plane, the more stable the plane is in flight. The harder it is to turn the plane. 
The lower the FOC, the more maneuverable it is. Well, which one do you want in your air? Do you want your air going all over the place? Or do you want it to only have if, a, Only if you have a say in where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> you, want it, you want it to be as stable as possible. But that, I like that. I listened to that analogy before and something that I was listening to you speak. And yeah, it's like a fighter jet has a, yes. a, the FOC is very low. You right? take F-22 so F Raptor, can almost fly sideways, but a human cannot fly it. He has to have a computer to do uh -huh. it. It's that unstable. But you take uh, TC-130, oh, it has a high weight forward. Well, as stable as can be. The pilot can sit there and turn loose of it for two or three minutes and talk to you. That's the big difference, and that's one of the benefits of high FOC in an era. An era is always, once it leaves the boat, it's always flying. The medium that it goes through changes. It flies through the air. It flies through the skin. It flies through the adipose tissue, through the muscle, through the bone, all the way through the animal. It's still flying. Until it comes to a stop, it's flying. Even when it hits the dirt, as long as it's moving, it's still flying. It's just flying through dirt now. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the concept of what it's doing. This stability carries on through the animal. This is where it really makes a difference in terminal ballistics to have that high FOC is we now have a very stable error that is much more difficult to redirect, to have hit a bone and glance off at an angle. So the higher we get that FOC, it makes a huge difference. Now, it makes no difference in the testing we have so far, makes no difference as far as penetrating a heavy bone. That depends totally on the weight of the air, how long it's able to push on the bone. But once it breaches the bone, the FOC comes into play, and that's where you get a huge increase in post-breaching penetration. From backyard plinking to serious training to even big game hunting, UmerexAirGuns.com has what you need. Umarex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns, from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting-edge rifles that fire 50 caliber slugs or even broadhead-tipped arrows. As air gun hunting has grown across the nation, Umarex Air Guns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, Humorexairguns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. Humorexairguns.com also has a lineup of airsoft and paintball markers that replicate your favorite concealed carry pistols, which allow you to practice drawing, aiming, and firing for pennies on the dollar and without loading up to go to the range. Visit Humorexairguns.com to see how far air power has come since you were a little kid. That's humorexairguns.com. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. 
Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigational app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use a fully functional GPS when you're out of service. We all know that's usually where the best part starts. It's intuitive to use and lets you find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just a tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty rating, duration, clearance level, open and close date, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. You just download it ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. The archery industry's reluctance to look at what you have. Oh, yeah. You're divorced from the industry intentionally yes um they're coming around though yeah but you i I mean are you how were you making your own broadheads and like how were you testing different setups that didn't exist if the archery industry didn't produce them uh the only single bevel was out there was uh the grizzly and i used a lot of that's not what they made it's a a different one that harry elberg used to make um and uh, so I mean, I, the, weight, the different weight arrows. How are you making those? I, I was building them up. I was weighting the arrows oh. with all sorts of different things. Like drilling them out and filling them and stuff? Uh, some, I feel, some were double-shafted arrows, uh, some internally footed arrows, uh, all sorts of ways to, to increase the weight on there. And, uh, yes, uh, in the early days, I made a lot of the, uh, when they weren't available, steel inserts, brass inserts. Had people make them for me, machinists. I wasn't good enough to make them. Uh, I see. Yeah, but uh, that's what I was curious. Like, so, so you had to be. You were testing things that didn't technically ex- not didn't exist. Yeah. You were testing things that weren't available on the market, right? Because I was finding as I would do a test, and and I would say, okay, we need to look at this. And we need to look at this. Well, this isn't available. And now, you, some paid, you paid I, for all that out of pocket, every bit of it. Even having hardness. You ever tests. get married to have kids? Uh, married twice, divorced twice. I learned. What they think? <laughs> what they think about all that Arrowhead buying and all that? Uh, that's why I'm divorced twice, probably. <laughs> <laughs> how how long did you stay married? The longest? Thirteen years. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. The next one was three years. I got smarter faster. <laughs> yeah. 
I just had my 13th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying that the the air the current the heavy aero systems that you like high FOC. Yeah. And you explained FOC, but then explain the rest of the aero system. Uh, okay. There are actually, if you look on our website, we'll go through them in detail. There, this is the Ashby Bow Hunting Foundation. Yes, you can go through the twelve factors that are there. We also have all of the updates that we did through the years. Now, when people start reading those, and there's a lot of pages of them, they need to read the whole thing because some of the things early on that I'd look at the research and the data that we had and said, well, you know, it indicates it might be this, might be that. But we learn stuff as we go along, and things get better and better and better um, as, we, as we do get more information on it. So we, we would find these new things that, that needed to be looked at, and that's just what we had to do. And if we had to build something, we built it. You know, that's just what you did. The hardest part w was coming up with shafting, you know, good shafts, and, and the long process of every era that we've used in the study is tuned. Uh, bear shaft tuned. Every one of them. Because without that, that's one of the high factors. Is you know, You've got to have structural integrity of the air. That's the most important thing. Without that, it doesn't matter if it flies perfect. Where do you hit the animal? Nothing. If that air breaks or a part of it breaks when it hits the animal, every, everything's lost. You've got no control over what's happening. You're probably going to lose an animal. Uh, and then you have to have perfect flight. Now, those two things never, ever change. So you got to go through the, all this long tuning process for every error before you start testing it, or your testing's no good. Mm -hmm. And then you go down through all of the other factors. And each factor, they'll compound each other so that this factor adds a certain percentage gain. And this factor adds a certain percentage gain. Well, if you've got one of them in there, you've got this gain. Well, when this gain kicks in, it takes in a portion of this gain. So it keeps adding up as you go to more and more factors. To If you want to get the most out of it, you incorporate as many of the factors as you can. But the important thing is that anything you do out of these factors to your error setup is going to make it better. And you have... Was it 12 factors? 12, yeah, yeah, we have 12 factors in there. Can that, you go through some of them? If I get my notes out, I can, because we're going to do that later today. Because I'll forget all and of them. And they're ranked in order. They're, of they're ranked in mm -hmm. relative order. Yeah. If you took in all shots together, the ranking will change under certain situations. Uh, for instance, the heavy bone threshold is right at the bottom of the list. Because it's not important unless you hit a heavy bone. But when you hit a heavy bone, it'll jump to the number three position. And so, so there is some movement in these things depending on the shot. That's why you incorporate. You don't know what's going to happen on a shot. The animal's going to move. It's rare. We've got a lot of video footage here in Texas shooting hogs and deer and stuff. Uh, compounds, fast compounds, slow compounds, traditional bows. So far, we don't have a video of an animal that does not move before the air gets there. And most of these are 16, 18-yard shots. Hmm. So if you look at it in slow motion, the animal is in motion. In He's motion, reacting. 
in motion in response to the bow noise. In yes, yeah. and most of the time it's a duck and roll away, duck and roll away from the source of the noise. From the source, but not always. Sometimes they'll completely reverse on you. Sometimes they'll actually turn into it. But there's always some movement going on in there. Really, there's not a, a, a we single don't have video a single just... video of an animal not reacting at all. Now, the only times I've ever seen animals not react at all to the shot was on a very long-range shot that's all been small game, varmint shooting, varmint calling, that kind of stuff, uh, where they might not hear it. But we we're going to do more. I've done a little bit of research looking at arrow noise, and you can quieten down an arrow a lot by different types of fletching. And we've worked out a fletching that we, we call an A&A &A fletching, very small, uh, triangular shape. It'll only work with very high FOC arrows. The, the higher you've got the FOC, you now have a long rear steering arm on the arrow. So it does not take much fletching to overcome the wind shear of the broadhead. That's why you bear shaft tuned. If it shoots perfectly, bear shafted. And then you put your broadhead on there, the only fletching you need is enough to overcome the wind shear under all wind conditions. So I tune that fletching just like I would anything else. That I put the broadhead that this arrow is going to be used with, and then I see how small I can go in that fletching before I get unstable flight. Then I go back up slightly. We actually use a thing called a turbulator, which is a little pinstripe thing that goes around in front of the feathers, about a quarter of an inch. Feathers do work better than veins because they, they've got higher drag and they're lighter. gives us higher FOC. The turbulator disrupts the laminar flow down the air shaft, which creates increased pressure, just like it would on an airplane. They use turbulators on airplanes, too, uh, which will increase the pressure on the smaller fletching. And that has a much lower sound effect. So we're going to do a lot more research for that. That's coming up. Because you think they're responding to the sound of the approaching arrow, too. I know they do. Yeah. T take a big fletch and shoot at a rabbit at about 80 yards. Watch him perk up and move before the arrow gets there. Nothing's just going. Oh, he hears it coming. <laughs> yeah. So you have to Probably look at things doesn't like doesn't sound it. too dissimilar from a hawk, <laughs> hawk dive bombing <laughs> in on it. That's true. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. Yep. And and so big fletching. Now, when I first started hunting, uh, and it started into this research, even, I I had to use really large feathers because I realized that at close range I had to get my arrow out of paradox to get the penetration up, because I could shoot animals at eighteen twenty yards a lot more penetration than if I shot him at seven or eight yards. What do you mean? A out? lot more. That's the paradox. The, the arrow is flexing. Yeah. So you know, so yeah, the archer's that. paradox. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, let me give it a shot, and then uh, you can uh, correct uh, me. But basically, as that your bowstring starts to push your arrow, the arrow doesn't immediately start moving. It first flexes. Your arrow does this as it's coming out of your bow, like it bends in a sideways, uh, you know, a half arc. moon arc, an arc, and then as it leaves, it does that the other direction, and then the other direction, and eventually it straightens out. And then flies completely straight. But the paradox is that it's not that you think the, 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 close, the, you think the closer it is, the better. Well, the, the original paradox, of course, there weren't center shot bows, was that in order to hit the target, 
it has to bend around the bow. It has to not be pointed at the target. Yeah, but that's not a paradox. Well, it is. It's paradoxical that's just what they that you don't it. point at it to be able to hit it. Oh, there's the paradox. There I was trying to figure out where the paradox is. I that's thought the paradox was you think really close is better. No, no, no. It, it's actually the, the fact that yeah. on a on okay. a traditional bow that, you know, and in some of the bows I use have no uh, shelf for that reason. Let me use lighter arrow shafts when I was trying to get it high FOC. Yeah. And the, the arrows pointed off like this to shoot out there. I guess the, the rifleman's paradox would be that if you're shooting at something at point blank range, you'd have to account for the fact that your crosshairs are an inch and a half higher than your... Essentially, yeah. You'll be, off, I mean, you'll be off by an inch and a half. That's right. You'd have the line of sight <laughs> and the bore axis, and somewhere out there they're going to cross, and then they're going to cross again. Yeah. I'm going to dub the rifleman's paradox. <laughs> Trademarking. <laughs> <laughs> and because a lot but, of people don't know Archer's paradox, we also yeah. call it shot flex. Oh. Yeah, and you get it again on impact because... It bows again. Now, now it's hit. The front of the air has slowed down, and the back of the air is still trying to push it forward. Now, one of the things we found with the higher FOCs is that they come out of paradox when you shoot it much faster because it's lighter at the back end. And when you hit the animal, most of the weight is up front. You've got a very stiff forward lever arm, and the back of the shaft is very light. And because it's very light, it doesn't push as hard. It doesn't flex as much. And it stops flexing much faster. So that helps you get increased penetration. Because when that's flexing going through the wound channel, it's having to push tissue every time it bends. And it goes through a bone, same thing. It's trying to push against that bone. And that slows it down. Now, there's a couple of things you can do to see that real easy. Uh, you can take a dowel rod, long one. Get your four or five foot one. Drill your hole in the board and put it in there. And get a rubber ball. Put the rubber ball way at the back end and pull it over the side and watch it go just like a metronome. Takes forever to stop. Move it down about halfway, which you're a little more than halfway, like most arrows are. You know, go a long time. Put it right down against the board and it goes, stops. Same thing happens with an arrow. Now, you can do that with actual arrows by drilling a pretty good size hole, say five-eighths of an inch or something. And take two arrows, one with a normal FOC, one with a high FOC, very high FOC. Put it in there so the, the arrow is identical except for the FOC. Same shaft size, everything about it. Pull it over to the side, turn it loose, time it with a stopwatch tick, 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 to drop through the hole. Now take the high FOC when it goes tick, 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 thunk. Mm -hmm. Same thing's happening when it goes through a bone or a hole in the bone once you've punched a hole through there. They're very easy to see. You guys even use a Doppler radar when you're doing research? Yes, yes. We, we have, well, Daryl's got one, so now we've got three. The foundation has bought two. And we've got a high-speed camera on the way. Might be here by now. When Rob gets home, we'll find out. Where we can, uh, a genuine high-speed camera, not a regular camera that's, you know, shooting three or 400 frames, whatever. This is 3,000 frames a second. Well, how does the, how does the, what do you do with the Doppler radar? Uh, it, it works like any other chronograph, but it will read the error at, at whatever ranges you want to set it for. So this reading is, goes out, so you can shoot one error by it, and you can read the launch velocity. You can read it at 5 yards, 10 yards, 15, 20, 30, 40, out to where it will no longer pick it up. Well, it'll pick these Doppler radar like that. will pick up a 30 caliber rifle bullet out to about 70 yards. So it'll pick up an arrow a long way out there. 
And we've just started, started doing some testing with those. Are you able to test it coming in and going out of something? That's why we're trying to work out a system to do. That's why we've got multiple of them. Because you're going to have to have one to read it going in and one to read it coming out. Because the animal's going to be in the way. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to work out a system to do that. Uh, uh, so Daryl and Troy are working on that now, trying to come up with a methodology. And uh, having Daryl with us, who's a, a true, I mean, we call him the rocket man. He's true rocket scientist. He's worked for the government all these, worked on rail guns and uh, uh, tank penetrating projectiles and uh, cruise missiles and all this kind of stuff that, you know, for years. So he's very much into both terminal ballistics, but more so probably into flight ballistics. Are you going to hit us with the 12 factors? Oh, I was. Yeah, I will. Okay, the, the very first one, the first four are, are really the ones, that, <laughs> about the only ones I remember off the top of my head, the structural integrity which we talked about, which is an absolute must-have. That's going to always be number one. The second one is going to be the air of flight. We talked about perfect air of flight. You're going to have to have that. The next most important overall is the extreme FOC. That's percentage-wise going to give you the biggest gain in penetration through soft tissues, post-bone breaching, so forth. The next one is the mechanical advantage of the broadhead. Now, broadhead has its inclined planes. It's a series of inclined planes on most broadheads. Some of them got some other weird stuff stuck on them. But the longer and narrower it is, the higher the mechanical advantage is. And you can think of it like wheelchair ramps. Wheelchair ramps are low and gradual because it's easier to move a load from here to there. It will do more work with the same applied force. That's what mechanical advantage is. So if we get a broad head that is a true three-to-one mechanical advantage, it will take the force of the error and multiply it by a factor of three. And if it's a two-to-one, you're multiplying it by a factor of two. Now, a lot of broadheads are way down there, below one on some of them. So you're actually losing force from the mechanical advantage of the broadhead. What's the shittiest broadhead being sold out there? <laughs> Most mechanicals. <laughs> Most mechanicals? Most mechanicals. It, yeah, because right. those things got some... If I had my druthers... I mean, well, just, going, I, just going by what you're saying, they have a very low, once yeah. they're deployed, they have a very low mechanical. And, and also the force of deployment. Uh, and we also have, have gauges that we're now starting to use that, and we use it in some of our demonstrations, of letting people take their own broadheads and, and bring a, a hide and let them push it through there. And we've actually got a gauge you can put on there, and you can see the force required to push it through the hide. Yeah, there's a, there's a thing called a trap pan tent. Uh, trap pan tension gauge yep that's essentially yep just press down and measure your pan tension yep yep and it's it's really uh graphic because we have had people uh with heads that with all the force they could use could not push them through the hide (laughs) wow and then they take a good cut on contact Uh, really sharp like a chisel tip i guess is is what's yeah a lot of the chisel tips are are tough like that or the cone tips Okay. Yeah. Uh, hard to push through. Very hard to push through. 
uh, and a lot of the mechanicals, very hard to push through, got very that blunt angle, even when you get the front part through. Blades it, trying to get them to deploy, and then trying to get them through there. And it takes almost no force with a good high mechanical advantage, cut on contact, broadhead the sharp. You can just push through with one finger. It's no problem. Hmm. And all of that force that you save there of the error is force you can apply to more penetration. So you want to get through all the tissues with the least resistance you can, mm -hmm. which is basically what we do with all the factors. We're looking to maximize the force that the error carries with, with every factor that's in there. I want to get back to that list, but I just have oh, one. But I have one, too. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You've gotten a bunch in, so I think you can let me have one. Yeah. Because can you tell the story about, or because you talk about penetration, some people might, are going to say, well, at what point is it too much? Because if I go through both sides, that's enough. But I read something where you were saying that, no, it's definitely better because of uh, what the, was it the Royal Academy of yep, Vets uh, Veterinary did? Science, yeah, yeah. in, in uh, Great Britain. Uh, they actually did some research. For what reason, I don't know. <laughs> On errors. I never did figure that out. But uh, if the shaft remains in, it impedes the hemorrhaging. If it stays in and the animal is moving, it impedes even more the hemorrhaging. But if it goes completely through, the shaft is out and the hemorrhaging is freer. Now, one of the, one of the things, try for yourself. Get you a Ziploc bag, gallon size three-quarters full of water, get you some barbecue skewers. I see where this is going. Stick the skewers <laughs> through. Mm -hmm. Look at the leak that's coming out. You know, start first, just stick it in one side. Stick it in one side. Then push them all the way through, both sides, still in there. Now pull the two out and watch what happens. <laughs> this is essentially what happens. If you go talk to any emergency room well, Is that hemorrhaging or leaking? I mean, there's both. Yeah, because like for blood trailing, hemorrhaging is leaking. Yeah, for blood trailing, I could see it's having. Yeah. Well, no, there, like it's in like it could still be bleeding internally. It, well, but it's not doing you any good on the ground. No, it having the projectile in there impedes bleeding. Okay. Any trauma, not just, any not trauma just the dripping, people, not just first dripping responders, yeah. emergency yeah. room physician. If you have an embedded object, the first thing they're going to tell you to do is not remove it. It should not be really removed until you have that patient in a setting where you can control the increased hemorrhaging that's going to occur when you remove that. And that's exactly what it'll say. You can look that one up on the Internet. That's easy to find. <laughs> that's even in movies. <laughs> yeah. Even Internet well, knows that one. the hemothorax and the Yeah, oh, yeah. Plus, you, you know, if the air has gone completely through, it, it's, now you have sucking chest wound, collapsed lungs. What do you do when you've got somebody that does have a penetrate shot with a bullet? What do you do? You put a seal over there. You don't want to collapse that lung. They, they've got to have that seal to be able to breathe. So that's not what we want. We want them to die. We're not trying to keep them alive. So you want that error to exit completely. Yeah. And if they, people talk about error staying in and moving around and causing all these lacerations and stuff. Well, if it goes far enough to stick in the other side, it's not going to move around much. But even if it's in there, if they'll dissect that animal, you don't see a lot of that laceration. It doesn't happen. The tissues hold it firm enough. And like we were talking about very mobile tissues, lungs are very mobile, much like intestines and stuff. 
you know, they'll move. So that's a myth because I think that's something that it, it, if you a look lot at, of people sort of accepted that, yeah, if your broadhead's just at least in there and the animal's running around, it's moving and cutting it, and it's good. Yep. But it, that's it, a myth. It, it is not there if you dissect animals. You don't, do, don't see this massive laceration. It's like in our head, we think it's doing this. Oh, yeah. You see the air flopping around, around when it runs off. You think, man, that's got to be cutting. Well, he's moving too. But the tissue's holding it, and so it's just going like yeah. this. Just staying straight, not cutting. So it's just not there. That's why I wish I could get people to, uh, to dissect animals and look at it, and they would start to learn some of this stuff. But most people don't do it. They've got the animal and get out of here, you know. And they very rarely look to gun hunters need to do that, too. Get an idea how their bullets perform. There's a lot of crappy bullets on the market, too. I did a lot of terminal ballistic research for Barnes bullets, too. So I've got uh, quite a background in in doing terminal ballistics. Uh, but anyhow, where were we? We're on our list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I got one more. Well, never mind. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, st- I'm still I'm down. I'm game. Go ahead. No, I'm still down. Oh, Okay. Uh, well, we're on mechanical advantage, but one of the things that people don't look at also is that your edge bevel has a mechanical advantage. This is also an inclined plane. Now, if you've got a double bevel, it's like that. The most well, common b- is... Back up a little bit, because I think already we've probably maybe lost some listeners. Oh, like, okay. Just to explain, like, the bevel and this angle and, and just... It, like back it up to just 101 so we yeah, know exactly do it off, what we're do it off of knife blades and razor blades and yeah, uh, basically most most double bevel broadheads are much like a knife blade the most common angle is the same on both of them is 25 degrees on each side you now have a 50 degree cutting angle when you get to a single bevel one side is flat you got a bevel on the other now, we've got some out there with 20 degrees now. We're, we're testing some of those in Africa right now to see if that'll hold up at 20. Now, I worked uh, originally the Grizzlies I got had about 35 degree, I think. And I worked with different bevels, working them down. And the lowest I could get to was 25. Below 25, the steel wasn't strong enough. It started to roll the edge. Mm. So that was as slow, as low as you could get. But those... When you get to a 25-degree bevel, you've got zero and 25. It is now twice as thin as a double-bevel broadhead. Its mechanical advantage is twice as high. Now, what does that mean for you? Okay, a blood vessel is touching it with the same amount of pressure between the two edges. The single bevel is going to slice twice as deep or twice as easily, whichever you want to look at it, as that double bevel because it has a higher mechanical advantage. It does more work with the same applied pressure. By definition, that's what mechanical advantage does. But you have to have steel of a good enough quality for that edge to hold up. That's why a real premium single bevel head, you know, or 100 plus dollars for three heads. But you can at least reuse them. Look at the price of... Uh, 500 Nitro Express rifle cartridges now have $400 a box of 20. You know, if, 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 the broadhead is going to be one of the least expensive things of your hunt. So is the whole era set up, you know. And why people scrimp on the one thing that's going to come in contact with the animal, I have never understood. But they do it. 
But basically, that's where mechanical advantages come in. I hope that's clear enough you can understand it. Most people really overlook the mechanical advantage of the edge bevel. It's a big one. And another thing is that we talked about long. Well, I would guess that right now if we looked at, just picked a random 10 arrowheads on the Internet, that the edge bevel, the angle, might not even be listed under the specifications. Oh, most of the time it's not. It's probably not even a thing that people even think yeah, about yeah. or know to think about. But that's about. something we track. In the study, we track the edge bevel of every, if it's got six blades, we're going to have the edge bevel of all six blades listed there. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's got bleeder blades, four blade with bleeder blades, sometimes they have different angles ground on them. So we've got that all tracked. And that's one of the factors you can look at is, is what difference does it make. And the one thing that we found when we were looking at single bevel versus double bevel, in absolute identical profile broadheads on the same era setup, is that the single bevels will give you more penetration, both in soft tissue and drastically so in bone. Huge difference in bone because the rotating single bevel will pop the bone. I think that we should uh, you should explain the how a single bevel uh, like Rotational makes itself force. it okay. rotate when it hits an animal and bone when it and when all it's that. flat on one side. Okay, well we'll put the bevel over here. If it's flat on one side and beveled on the other, mm-hmm. when you apply pressure to this side as it goes through something, there's no pressure on this side. And it causes the rotation. There you go. Yeah, folks can't see that. Folks the can't see that. The guy comes prepared. <laughs> he's got a big old plastic broadhead. But now. he's got a left bevel, but see. that's all right. Uh, it, it's going to press here, but not here. And it's going to press here, but not here. Okay, so Doc so is, is po- going, when he says press here, he's pointing at the beveled at the edge bevel. of the broadhead, not the flat edge. Yes. The, the torque generated is going to be proportional to the amount, if you're talking about a bone, the amount of surface area of the bevel in contact with the bone at any given time. Now, there's also going to be a differential by how wide the broadhead is. When you get a very wide broadhead, you're putting a lot more stress on the edge at any given bevel angle because you've got a longer lever arm coming out here torquing. So it's going to be more likely to roll that, edge or chip the edge or whatever it's going to do now if it's got to do one or the other you want it to chip rather than roll a chipped steel blade is a whole lot sharper than a rolled edge a rolled edge doesn't you can saw your hand with it it's not going to cut anything but that's where you get the torquing effect when you have a double bevel you got even pressure on both sides when they hit a bone it has to push its way straight through. Now, with a high-speed camera, we're going to find out just how far it goes into the bone before it pops it with that torque. Mm. Yeah, I think it's happening very quickly. I don't know that, but we're going to find out. Can I tell you something? I was reading a thing one time where a guy was just, you holding that thing, the single bevel, mm. talking about that. Uh, I was reading a thing where a guy was, writing a paper on what he believed the prevalency of left-handedness was among Folsom hunters based on resharpened Folsom points Point. that they assumed were hafted and that he was working with his left, holding yeah. the half with his right hand and working with the left. And I think they found that they were had a higher prevalency of, 
I think this guy suggests they had a higher prevalency of left-handedness. <laughs> At least amongst <laughs> the hunters. I can believe it. People do strange things. <laughs> it's interesting anyway. Does that give you a good idea of what we're talking about with the torque generator? Yeah. yeah. What, what number are you on right now? Uh, we're still at number four, mechanical advantage. Oh, you got all that rolled under mechanical advantage? That's like ABC. Well, it, it not necessarily with the torque. That would come down generally further where we talk about the type of edge bevel. Okay, go to five. But, but uh, okay, five is the shaft diameter to ferrule diameter ratio. Right there. People Your can't shaft see goes into the broadhead. If it's like this, smaller you gain about 10% penetration as opposed to being even. Oh. If the shaft is bigger, you lose 30% okay. penetration. What, what he's talking about is – that's, a that's easy to understand, difference. right? What he's talking about is the – The drag. Yeah. Like if you run your hand from a shaft down to the broadhead, you definitely don't want it to drop off at the broadhead. Well, that's further down the list too. But, yes, broadhead profile, arrow profile is important. But that's the important one to have right there. And we, we're going to do more research on it, but in what the data we have now, it doesn't seem to increase very much in penetration once you're about 5% smaller than the broadhead ferrule. Mm -hmm. But we've got a lot more skinny shafts to work with now. So we may come up with something new as we do the newer testing and, and find out that, okay, going down more, you might gain some more penetration. And the why, the why I'm guessing is the, just that the broadhead has created a bigger channel than well, it, the arrow it, needs to go it's through. It's just pure drag. If, if you look at this coming down and having to bump up over an arrow shaft, sure. yeah. now it's going to have more pressure against this tissue. And shaft profiles on there too. As we look at shaft profiles, if you have a barrel taper shaft, then is that a thing? There, you can oh, go yes. and buy a barrel tapered. Oh yeah, shaft? particularly in, in wood arrows, traditional arrows. Yes, they're very common okay. and been used for centuries and for various things. But uh, it'll it'll be you know one diameter here, then it gets bigger towards the middle, mm -hmm. and then it tapers at the back. Those will have the lowest penetration. Okay. If you took identical arrows for everything except the shaft profile, same weight, same broadhead, shot from the same bow, shoot each one fifty times, and and look at the averages. You're, you're going to lose a significant amount of penetration. The highest penetrating is the taper shaft. The taper shaft, the further it gets in, the, the drag of the shaft drops. Now, you have to remember, too, when you, and it's why you can't. I haven't been able to find artificial mediums that worked well. It's because you're shooting that arrow through a blood in an animal, through a blood-suffused environment which lubricates it. You know how slick blood is. You've had blood on your hands. Try to hold your knife handle when you're gutting an animal. And it, it actually has a lubricating effect, which is another reason we do our testing within 30 minutes of putting the animal down, not only for changes in the tissue rigor mortis, but blood will start to coagulate. You no longer have any bleeding. When you shoot them when they're fresh put down, you still have some blood coming out of the tissues. So you know you, have you, know you guys might get into? A, a guy just sent in this thing about how uh, he was in a he has a cadaver lab or was in a cadaver mm. lab a human cadaver lab. Oh yeah, <laughs> they pump beef blood hmm? through cadavers. Yeah, to keep them. I don't know. Yeah, 
freshened up. <laughs> you could yeah. apply that to your guys' studies. Yeah, right. Talk to cool. that man. He's, he's a lab guy. Talk to that man <laughs> yeah. right there. Use a yeah. sous vide. I do field stuff. <laughs> yeah, they, they, stuff. they even do it at temp. So they, wow. they use sous vide. Oh, oh yes. Wow. Yeah. Warm, yeah, warm, warm beef cooking. blood and roll it through cadavers to yeah, keep them nice and yeah. fresh. <laughs> he's making a note of that yeah. over yeah. here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Science. Transfer of knowledge, man. <laughs> Transfer of knowledge right there. If the rifleman's paradox doesn't work <laughs> yeah. out, then this, yeah, this idea you might. You yelled a patent at. Okay, what number are you on now? Okay, it was number six. Arrow mass. The physical arrow weight. Now, that's a real simple one from physics. The heavier something is, the longer it takes to stop. Period. And as all, it'll also gain more energy from your bow. I don't care what kind of bow you shoot. If you put a heavier air on there, it's going to happen. It won't be big, but it's going to have an increase in kinetic energy transfer, which is the proper use of kinetic energy, not what the air does, from the bow into the air. Because all of the noise and the sound and the vibration you get with a light air the heavier area you go to, the more it diminishes. Now, I haven't gone all, I've gone up to about 1,600 grain errors, and it's still showing that. You're still seeing a small kinetic energy gain as you go to the heavier errors out of any given bow. Compound, recurves, long bows, doesn't matter. Works with all of them. And that error mass is going to carry this additional force that it has received from the bow. And what we're doing with all these factors is trying to maximize the conservation of this force the arrow has derived from the bow to be able to apply it to the animal when it hits. Because this is the end point. This is what really matters, is the terminal ballistics. And, you know, kinetic energy tells you how hard something hit. Um... It doesn't tell you the forward motion of it. It doesn't, kinetic energy doesn't have a direction. Sound is kinetic energy. Vibration of the shaft is the wiggling of the shaft, the resistance of it against the air, the paradox. These are all part of kinetic energy. They have nothing to do with penetration because penetration is directional force. And that's what you get with momentum. Momentum does have a direction. And momentum has to be met by an equal force of resistance before it stops. So the more momentum you can put into that era, which is mass times velocity, not velocity squared, mm -hmm. and not all of the momentum as force penetration is concerned works out equal. The more of that momentum that is invested in the mass of the era, the more outcome penetration you're going to have because the mass of the era is not going to change. The velocity is going to decrease as it penetrates. But a significant portion of that momentum is invested in the weight of the air. And that weight of the air is going to carry all the way till it stops. So even as that slows down, it's still carrying more momentum right up to the end. And that's why a bowling ball carries a lot more momentum than a baseball. What's the next one? Yeah, now if you, you, you talk about kinetic energy is one of my things I get off on because there are places that have applied <laughs> kinetic energy as a standard for hunting animals, and it is not applicable. I'm sorry, it does not apply. 
take a baseball pitcher, a major league baseball pitcher, can yes. pitch 96 miles an hour with a softball. If you look at the laws they've, where they apply it to Cape Buffalo, that's legal to hunt Cape Buffalo with. That's enough kinetic energy. They don't penetrate worth a damn on a Cape Buffalo. It'll make him real mad and probably get you pounded in the ground. Oh, hold on. I, I got what you're saying. You're saying that kinetic energy like does a, a, not apply. To a, a major league pitcher could take a baseball and get the right amount of kinetic energy. Oh, get more than enough. He's legal. He's legal. He's legal. <laughs> yeah. He's legal. I got what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, it, and that's one of the things the industry has applied for years because that helps speed sell. They push kinetic energy because, okay, we get this arrow going faster. We've got more kinetic energy. Wow. And, okay, you need this amount of kinetic energy. Now, look at all the things where you can see on the Internet where they tell you you need this much kinetic energy for hunting a mount, uh, an elk and this much for hunting a deer, this much for hunting a black bear. Show me one that tells you, is that launch kinetic energy or kinetic energy at impact? Nobody ever says. Now, in our study, we track the momentum and the kinetic energy at impact as well as at launch. It's the impact one that counts. And that's one thing that that heavier error is going to carry out there is that increased momentum to give you the penetration you need. And that's why arrow weight's important. Next factor, seven. We're up to seven now, is the <laughs> edge finish. We did some testing where we took multiple layers of fresh buffalo hide, which is about an inch thick. You're yeah. talking like Cape buffalo, Cape right? buffalo, yeah. Asian buffalo, any of the buffalo. Asian buffalo actually have a heavier hide across the shoulders and uh, chest area. Then They're actually a tougher animal than Cape buffalo, bigger too. Bigger heart by full kg. But we made multiple layers of this and took a series of arrows. And... We, we sharpened them by different methods. You're talking like you're just taking green hide. Green hide, fresh green hides. Okay, and then sandwiching them, sandwich them together. Hung them up. Stretching had, had them out. a truck to pull them up. I mean, they're heavy. And we would shoot them with these arrows with the edge sharpened by different methods. Okay. And then we compared for each arrow individually its performance against itself with a different edge finish. Hmm, okay. And... The worst edge is the old Howard Hill serrated edge where you take a file and drag it back across the broad head and you make all these little, what look like saw teeth, run the file lately down once to make them point forward because first thing it does is load up with tissue and then it won't cut nothing. Yeah. Nothing at all. File sharpened edges were better, but they still do the same thing. Microscopically, they still got, I don't care how smooth you file it, it's still got these little rough areas if you look at it under high magnification. And they do the same thing. They load up with fibers and they get dull. A honed and stropped edge, as thin and smooth and sharp as you can get it, is your best edge. The thinness and so forth for that mechanical advantage we were talking about earlier. But honed and stropped where it is just, there's not a rough place on it. Not catching anything. Not catching anything. And actually, once you get good at sharpening, as you get them to that, that finish, they actually feel less sharp. They're so smooth, sure. yeah. they no longer will gri- grip at your tissue. So they, don't act, they feel like they actually start dulling, but they're not. They're actually getting sharper. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, on the testing, we sharpen every broadhead to that honed and stropped level. Otherwise, the testing is not, not valid. Now, some broadheads that come in a package and say they're already factory sharp, well, we'll test them that way. But then when we have to redo them, we'll have to sharpen them and, you know, and see what they do that way. You ever see fish hooks advertised as chemically sharpened? Oh, yes. You get all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Would yeah. you I say always that, buy that, man. I'm like, well, that must be pretty damn sharp. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Would you say that most broadheads coming out of a package are sharp enough? Oh, no. <laughs> Very few in the world are sharp enough. But there are a couple. There are a couple yeah, that are sharp enough, but not many. And you like them spit-shined. You leather strop them. Oh, yeah. Well, not just you – know, I use a horsehide strop, which is probably the best leather strop you can get. Huh. Uh, uh, the rump, the rump hide off the horse. Cordovan. Uh, years ago, that used to be what? What would you say? Cordovan. Cordovan yeah. leather. Cordovan leather. It's Cordovan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There's only one factory in the world that makes it. In Cordovan Chicago. leather is definitionally horse hide rump. Yep. Yep. Oh shit. Only one place, one factory yep. in the world makes it in Chicago. It's the toughest leather in the world. Huh. And and, and I use. Uh, I need to get strip well, I use double sided <laughs> one. And and one one side is. Uh, Finished with, uh, uh, I put uh, polishing compound on it, uh, 60,000 grit. And the other side has nothing on it. It's just the hide. 60,000 grit. 60,000 grit. But the <laughs> other side that has nothing on it has been sanded down with 10,000 grit sandpaper to polish it. So that it's just a hard, polished surface. And that punches some buffalo hide. Hmm? That'll punch through some buffalo oh, hide. Oh, yeah. With, a, with incredible difference in the penetration that you get but it was consistent with every error it didn't matter if it was a three blade four blade whatever kind of head we used the honed and stropped always penetrated the most the file sharpened always was second and the hill ones were always last with all these different kinds of broad heads and and different errors different weight errors but every error is compared only back to itself not to all the other errors so it was strictly the sharpening method that made the difference in the penetration. I got a problem right now. So we're on seven, yeah. and this is great. And I want to open up a real can of worms, but I want you to, I want you to not take the bait too much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, set a timer. Because <laughs> we were going to get into this heavy duty, but we're not going to be able to because we're working. I, I'm too, I, I, I like the list too much. <laughs> now, Yanni was mentioning to me, I didn't know this. He was mentioning to me that you've spent time in Papua New Guinea. Yes. Researching arrows. Yes. And I just want to bring up one anecdote. Okay. Yeah. I just want you to like very quickly address um, ancestral archery technology real quick. And the anecdote is this. You know the guy we bought Rush off of? Yeah. Alex, the, one of the czars. Yeah. His kid... I think it was his 22nd birthday in 1871, 72. His kid came out and went on a buffalo hunt with Custer yeah. and Wild Bill Cody. Afterward, I believe it was a, I can't remember if he was Cheyenne. A guy went out, rode up alongside a buffalo. Bison. Not a buffalo. Yeah, I know. Okay. okay, but if I said I was going to an, if I said I was going to antelope hunting in Wyoming, would you be like, boy, I'm very confused right now, or would you know what I was talking about? Yeah, but buffalo gets to be a very 
contentious term. I know. Because a lot I'm, of people I'm think using when it we very, talk about buffalo testing, they, they think bison. I know, but I'm using it extremely intentionally. Okay. <laughs> uh, what was I getting at? Buffalo. He rode up beside it and shot it. Oh, yeah. One t- here's a funny story I'll tell you real quick. When I, I was doing some research one time, and I was with these guys from the Buffalo Field Campaign. Mm-hmm. Okay? And these, these are like activists who were working to prevent state slaughter of bison leaving Yellowstone National Park. But their organization's called the Buffalo Field Campaign. I'm standing <laughs> there with the guy from the Buffalo Field Campaign, and here comes a pronghorn running by, and I say, oh, there's an antelope. He goes, oh, that's actually a pronghorn. Yes. And I'm like, well, your organization's named wrong. There, there's like popular terminology, right? <laughs> so a bison, the American mm-hmm. bison. The American bison. Punches, uh, punches a nail right through it. Yeah. And then presents the arrow... So pass through shot mm-hmm. presents the arrow to whatever his name was. Okay, and uh, brings it home. Yes. Um. In your research of uh, the plains bow archery tackle used in Papua New Guinea, Clovis points, mm-hmm. have you found um, different cultures that had? Uh, have you found evidence of different cultures that? accidentally or intentionally were applying things that you're now impressed by? Oh, yeah. Have you found cultures that, man, how did they not realize? Oh, I, I think a lot of this stuff was known probably thousands of years ago, and we've lost it. We're just re- rediscovering what people knew. If you look at uh, uh, Japanese eras, uh, you look at Chinese eras, these were high FOC eras. Hmm. Look at the medieval war eras, high FOC eras, high mass. This stuff's been used all all around. New Guinea's and, the perfect and, and example. And not just because the limitation of the materials, like evidence that there was like intentionally, like could have been different, but was well, intentionally. The, the, the perfect example is New Guinea of intentional because I examined archery equipment that was pre-World War II. No steel available. The points are made of hardwood. Mm-hmm. The bows were made of black palm. These are beautiful, graceful bows, but not look out of place at a, at a primitive archery shoot now, today. And the, the arrow shafts were much like we would think of the diameter of an arrow shaft. And the wooden points are quite long, made out of hardwood. But these arrows were, uh, I think the lowest that I measured was about 32%, which would be ultra-extreme FOC, going up into the 40%. World War II comes along, and all of a sudden, there's rebar. There's steel. Now all the points are made out of steel. They're huge. It looks like a spear. Well, in order to use them, they had to go to a big cane shaft. Now, they make these things, you know, they're five and a half, six feet long, these arrows. But even with that big shaft, these points weigh so much we're talking that the light errors are on up 3,000, 3,500 grains and go up, you know, well above 4,000 grain errors. They couldn't get it to tune, and they actually tune their errors just like we do when we bear shafts, same process, off of their traditional bows. So what do they do? They change their entire bow. It is no longer, you know, 60 inches long, uh, Beautiful black palm. It is now seven and a half feet long. It's made out of bamboo. It's about that wide. Why is it that wide? 
Well, if you put that arrow way over here, paradox, that shaft can bend a whole lot more in tune around to straight flight. But they build these heavy arrows. No two arrows are alike because they're just hammering them out. But they'll get up there and shoot that arrow and do just like we do. They'll keep shortening that shaft until it shoots straight. Hmm. Now, they don't use any fletching. But their FOC on the post-World War II arrows is even heavier. Most of those are above 40% FOC. That's why they can get away with shooting them with no fletching whatsoever. Plus the fact they're not going very fast, which decreases the wind shear on the, on the broadhead. Uh, I didn't have any way to measure the velocity. I didn't have a chronograph there or anything like that. And the bows, both the pre-World War II, post-World War II, uh, they said the, the pre-World War II bows were about as heavy. And, and just pulling it, I would say it's in the 80-pound range is the typical bow. Mm -hmm. um, and the velocity, I would suspect, is less than 100 feet per second. Hmm. And they consider out to 25 meters good shooting range. And these guys are deadly with them. What are they hunting? Rusa deer and pigs. Okay. Those are the two common things. The Rusa deer li live out in bald, open country, floodplains. The only stalking you can do is just the roll of the ground. And for whatever reason, they generally stalk three guys at a time, but only one shoots. And I watched them, went out with one hunt, and watched them from a distance with the binoculars. I probably wasn't good enough stalker to stay with them. And uh, they, it was about a 25-yard shot the guy took. Now, they traditionally carry three arrows. All three will be different, and a blunt. And he took his heaviest arrow, which was about 4,500 grains, is the one he chose to shoot. And plunk, drives this big head all the way, sticking out the other side of the animal. Of course, the shaft is great big. It stops at the shaft. But the point's long enough, it's coming out the other side of the mm -hmm. rooster deer. Yeah, when, but, and when Doc's saying the point's long, he's like showing oh, his yeah, hands it, like it, a it's foot. It's 16, a foot, 18 six, inches. Okay, yeah, yeah, long. The short ones would be about a foot. Well, remember okay. those boys in Guyana when they had the, like, the tapir points? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know, 11, yeah. 12 inches of hammered thin uh, yeah. steel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I asked the guy. He had the best answer I've ever heard. I, I asked him. He was one of the few that spoke any English. And uh, why he chose that error out of his three, because it was the heaviest error he had. And best answer there was, works best. <laughs> <laughs> From backyard plinking to serious training to even big game hunting, UmerexAirGuns.com has what you need. Umarex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns, from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting-edge rifles that fire 50 caliber slugs or even broadhead-tipped arrows. As air gun hunting has grown across the nation, Umarex Air Guns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, UmerexAirGuns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. UmerexAirGuns.com also has a lineup of airsoft and paintball markers. 
that replicate your favorite concealed carry pistols, which allow you to practice drawing, aiming, and firing for pennies on the dollar and without loading up to go to the range. Visit umorexairguns.com to see how far air power has come since you were a little kid. That's umorexairguns.com. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigational app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use a fully functional GPS when you're out of service. We all know that's usually where the best part starts. It's intuitive to use and lets you find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just a tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty rating, duration, clearance level, open and close date, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. You just download it ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. All right, number eight. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The shaft profile we actually touched on. We talked about the parallel shaft, the tapered shaft, yep. and the barrel tapered shaft. That's what we're looking at there. Then the tapered shaft works the best. Parallel shaft, as long as it's not bigger than the ferrule, works really well. It's probably the standard most people would go by. And the the barrel tapered shaft is definitely the worst. No question about it. And uh Oh yeah, that's enough on that one. Then we talk about the broadhead and an arrow silhouette, and we touched on that too. You want the smoothest transition you can get. You don't want any lumps, bumps, spot wells, mm. uh, tra- abrupt transitions. Of you want it to look kind. like a stealth bomber. Other than the step down, you might get just back of the ferrule to the shaft. You do not want a bump on that arrow if you can avoid it. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Like we put that little turbulator on there. But that's a little, we actually use model airplane pinstripe 
that's about uh, 16th of an inch wide. No, maybe even smaller than that. 32nd, very narrow, just enough to disrupt that laminar airflow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you remember Del- you remember Delta broadheads from a long yeah. time ago? Yeah, yeah. I have a deer skull that's got a, one of those rattling around inside that yeah. my dad shot in the shot the deer in the forehead. Yeah. Um, it has serrated bleeders, so it's got double bevel edges. Yep. But then they would put little bleeders in there, and the bleeders were serrated. Yep. Uh, you don't like that profile? No. Because <laughs> that's that's a double sin, right? But it's inside, yeah. you said. So it it's, made it past that because they had a heck of a bump. Yeah. It, no, it's it's rattling around in its. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I probably said they had they knew where a deer was feeding alongside a road and it was very accustomed to vehicular traffic so he had his friend he opened the door on a van and he had his friend drive very slowly and he rolled out of the moving van with a with a recurve and then that deer would just watch cars go by and he rolled out of the van while it was moving rose up and shot and she like took notice of him she said swung her head around and it punched her right in the forehead <laughs> so i got it hanging on my wall with that thing I uh, James Hayes, the guy, the guy <laughs> only other guy in my county that bow hunted beside me, shot one in the forehead. Uh, did not get it. It <laughs> ran off with the air across, across 350 yards of open field. Yeah, like a unicorn. That does that does a lot of good for PR. Yeah, it yeah. does. Can you can you touch on I guess while we're talking about bleeder blades, just why? I guess I can tell you why people think they're good, right? Because it, <laughs> it gives you like another axis of a cut. There's well, more things cutting. They have lost the premise of it. I had, I had the, the honor of actually hunting with Fred Bear. <laughs> well, I heard him tell this around the campfire. I had lunch with him. And, yeah, nice guy. Akron, Ohio. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he said that the bleeder blade, the original bleeder blade, if you've seen the original Bear razor heads, were made out of that hard blue carbon steel. Uh-huh. He said the purpose of that is that as soon as it hits a hard surface like a bone, it shatters. Then the broadhead can carry on like a normal single-blade broadhead. It's only to open a bigger hole in the soft tissue to reduce the drag of the shaft. Where'd you hunt with Fred Bear? He, he came to this lease that Bob Lee had. Uh, so did Ben Pearson. I, yeah, I got to be good, pretty good friends with, uh, with Ben Pearson. I picked up a lot of valuable shooting information from him so the blades just got misnamed well no (laughs) people said oh these blades break off and they leave blades in the meat and somebody might eat them so they started making out of stuff that would bend and then destroyed the whole concept of it working oh now it just increased error drag and it just ruined your penetration but that wasn't the intent when fred bear designed them he had the design right. If you're going to use a bleeder blade, that's the one you want. And so bleeder blades that are advertised or put onto broadheads now, they're just reducing your drag. Well, they, they bend pretty easy, most of them, because they're very thin. Instead of breaking, shattering, like the original bleeder blades on the bare razor head, they bend. Once you get bent, like that tiny tip bend we were talking about, just, I mean... Almost as small, you can hardly see it. That loses 14% of the penetration. Just that little bend. And what's a bend of any kind going to do? It's going to redirect the path of that arrow. What's that going to do to the shaft? Now the shaft has got to try to make this bend, pushing all that tissue. 
It just kills your penetration. It just doesn't work at all. That's why structural integrity is the number one thing. Oh, okay, we're down <laughs> to number 10, which we've already touched on is going through the type of edge bevel. Through soft tissue. Oh, I thought that was earlier on in the thing. No, we just got off on it because we were talking about edge thickness and stuff. Oh, yeah. I thought that's why. Don't you up. remember me saying I thought you, you described four like it was four A, B, and C? No, it was just, we, we just got off on it. So, way down to number 10, the type of edge bevel. It, you do get an increase in penetration, and we used it with different profiles, broadheads, identical, identical error setups. You know, compare. Double bevel to single bevel. You get an increase in penetration even in soft tissue with a single bevel. And this was one of the things in the testing that had 100% frequency. It happened every time. And looking at... Uh, no matter what you hit. Yeah. With no, bone, no, soft with, tissue, sorry. Well, soft tissue. With bone, it's even more stark because the single bevel torques and pops that bone. You get a massive increase in average penetration, our mean, our media, median, our minimum, you know, any, any of the factors you want to take out, maximum penetration on every area, you can look at that, you know, full graph, compare any of them back and forth. You always have a higher percentage of penetration with a single bevel, and it was 100% frequency in the test. So it is important, to, particularly on bone, though. That's where it makes the, the biggest difference. And a lot of that is the higher mechanical advantage of the edge, less resistance going through, slices easier. It does more work with the applied force. It penetrates more. Just a simple physics. No, no, nothing magic about it. I want to you remember how we wedged that traditional uh, bit in between whatever, like eight and nine? Yeah. <laughs> I want to wedge something in here. Okay. Okay. Talk about... Um, apparently you were talking to Yanni about this, about uh, shooting animals and propping them up and shooting them. Yeah, that's the way we did most of the testing on freshly called animals. And you put the animal down, you got 30 minutes. So this is just so, again, let's bring it back to like the, the beginning. This is like when you talk about the study. Yes. This is the study. This isn't like the last, because earlier you said, oh, the last 600 animals that have come in. Well, the, the, those are your the, personal. Those are hunted animals. Those are these hunted are, these personal. These are separate databases. Yeah, separate. And we use the hunted animals as a cross-reference. Yeah. Are we seeing the same thing that the setup shots on these freshly down animals are indicating? Okay. And yes, we do. So this was, this was what you call the Natal study now? Well, no, the Natal study is where it started with. Okay. That was shooting the rhinos. And that, those were actually hunted animals. Okay. So then you went to a place where, like, explain, because we still, I don't think anybody knows exactly, like, when the, the study happened, what it was, well, where you were, what the animals were. Well, like I said, by the time I got through with the Natal study, I had more questions than I did going in. Okay. And... So I said, okay, you know, I'm going to carry on with this. And so I would do as many autopsies on animals as I could. And I made several trips back and forth to Africa, but then it really kicked up when I retired. And the first four years I was over there, I spent at least 300 days a year hunting. Now, that was either guiding or, which I didn't do a lot of, or, or hunting on my own, shooting animals. Mm -hmm. And... uh 
would do buffalo whenever we could. Like probably we'd go into Mozambique and do the buffalo over there uh, and collect as much data as we possibly could. Then after I got thrown out of Zimbabwe when they kicked all the Americans out uh, that weren't didn't have permanent residency, uh, I came back to the States, regrouped, and went down to Australia, spent time in Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, all that area down there. But uh, through contacts, I ran into a guy, he used to be the chief game ranger up in Kakadu Park. Uh, and What country is that in? Australia. Oh, okay. Of the Northern Territory. He shot, who knows, 30,000, 40,000 buffalo. You know, back when they were trying to eradicate Yeah, because they're like a non-native. Yeah. yeah. So they were, for years, tried to eradicate them. And his, his son is still uh, one of the park rangers there. He shot how many? Probably 30,000, 40,000 of them. And because uh, they shot them from everything, cars, helicopters, yeah. boats, any way they could shoot them. Yeah, of any, any buffalo you saw, you shot. Uh, and we're not able to knock the population down. So after he retired, he talked uh, the government, the Fish and Game Department, into establishing a study where he fenced in, I don't know, it's about seven miles by seven miles high fence. Uh, and he was trying to determine the carrying capacity without damaging the habitat. For the buffalo and he has to take about 500 a year off to keep the population at, at a level that won't damage the habitat or at least they think it's not going to damage it and uh so i got and, and, and he's sort of a recluse he don't take to everybody and think i live in the middle of nowhere he's really in the middle of nowhere and uh we just hit it off and he used to do a lot of testing while he's calling all these animals for uh, woodley bullets because he's got a huge collection of firearms, a lot of double rifles, British shotguns. I mean, he's got a, literally a sea container full of them. And uh, so, I, you know, when I went up there and met him, through, through a client that I had guided in, in Australia that knew him, and uh, we, we hit it off and he said, you know, yeah, let's let's come on up. So when we're, we're shooting buffalo year round, said come up and we'll, you know, we'll shoot the buffalo. We'll set up, you know, and you can test your arrows on them. And he thought it was fascinating. So did the other guys work for the the park there. The other game rangers they had a lot of them come out and watch. They were absolutely fascinated with what we're doing with arrows. And uh, so I would go up there three months a year, and we would do as many buffaloes as we could do. And I could do, because of all the stuff you got to do, the record keeping, the resharpening of broadheads, the building of new arrow setups of things you want to test, the most I could do was one buffalo every three days and, and get done. Uh, and we would go out, and he would get on the four-wheeler. I would follow him, and, and uh, we'd find a buffalo. We'd carry all the gear with us, and he'd shoot the buffalo, put it down, usually headshot neck shot, something like that. We'd get there, prop it up, do our shooting, and then collect all of our data. And then I would go back and, you know, do that, carry parts of it back to dissect and uh, where it had air stuck in the bones and stuff like that. And, and uh, then I'd write all the recordings down and then resharpen everything, get ready and to go. And you were collecting 120 different... 100, 118. 118 variables. Variables on there. And that's everything from, uh, you know, the bow, uh, the launch kinetic energy, the launch momentum, the impact momentum, 
what type of animal it was, what distance it was shot at, uh, what bones were hit. So you've got to make it easier because you know, I didn't have a, 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 a data, true database computer-wise. So I, I have a, a feel in there like it says entrance rib hit, yes, no. Entrance rib penetrated. And penetrate means pass completely through. Mm -hmm. If it just sticks out the other side, it didn't penetrate it. The bone stopped the air. I mean, the, the broadhead the had broad, to pass through the whole. The, the broadhead had to completely okay. pass through the bone yep. to consider it penetrated. And then you would carry on through other bones and organs of what was hit. You know, the exit ribs it hit was you know, scapula hit. You know, it was spinal hit, spinal process. Um, you know, depending on what you're shooting at, pelvic girdle, neck vertebra. Uh, so you've got all these bones in there so you can go through it and look for something in a, in a, it's in a spreadsheet. So I had limited search capability, but I could say, you know, uh, all of the trophy size bull, um, Asian Buffalo, uh, hit from a 20 degree angle, uh, impacting the ribs mm -hmm. and I'd get all those. And then I could go back and get the same thing and say, Give me all the single bevels that did that. Give me the results from all of the uh, EFOC eras that did that, or the ultra EFOC eras. And that way you could start comparing stuff. Okay, here's averages for this. Here's average. You can take out, okay, these are double bevel broadheads. Let's get those. You know, let's get single bevel broadheads. And so you can start getting all these sets of data to compare back and forth to each other, where you can look at what was the minimum penetration, what was the maximum, uh, and you've got fields in there where you describe stuff, too, that really didn't fit in, like bone skips and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so you got one field that's just free field. Describe the shot, the tissue damage, the whatever you wanted to describe in there. And uh, on that one, on the new one, we've got links for photos. I was such a bad photographer. I didn't have anything like that, so I had to keep track of what was what with photos just in a, in a book. <laughs> So uh, just one, like one aspect of this, what were the, when you were doing this, what were the shot distances, for instance? 20 yards, uniform. All of those are taken at a measured 20 yards. Okay. And then how many? Total shots, we probably have 5,000. Okay. And how many animals? I don't know. Never counted them. And a lot. You, but you had 30 minutes before rigor would impact those. Yes, you had about 30 minutes. Now, in warm weather, you might have a little bit more than that, but we we put it down at 30 minutes, and we stayed at 30 minutes because even in probably cool weather down there, because I went once in December. I'll never do it again to the Northern Territory of Australia. Mm. That was miserable. We know a rigor mortis specialist if you ever want to talk to him. <laughs> there you go. University yeah. of Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Chris Calkins. But he's picky about Calkins or Calkins. 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 Yeah, I that out. <laughs> yeah. Rigor mortis specialist. There you go. Yeah. Well, we did ours on the basis of, okay, you know, in, in the early days, it, yeah, we get past this. Okay, we're seeing a difference in outcomes. So we got to cut this off here. These, mm -hmm. yeah, throw these away. This, this didn't. Doesn't correlate with what we got before. Okay, what number are we on? Uh, where are we? Eleven. Tip design. We should have done this interstitial thing the I know. whole way through. Yeah, I man. was just that was a good idea. Yep. Dude. What we did was tip design was <laughs> I, I, I took a series of broadheads, 
identical era setups. Uh, these are all single blade broadheads. Hold on, say the number again. What number? Number eleven. Where? And what is it? Tip design. Tip. Okay, I'm sorry. And what we did was put different tip profiles, and we used seven different tip profiles. Yeah, because that goes against your whole mechanical advantage thing. Reason for that. We were looking at a number of things. He's we're holding looking, up. A, he's looking at. We're looking at a point. Yeah. That has a, a what earlier what he would describe as a very high mechanical advantage yes. angle profile or whatever the hell. But then it's got a little chisel point on it. Like no, a, it's like not a, a chisel. Chisel is different. Different angle. The, now I Degree. named these things. What's that like? In knives, they Wait, call that a what? Tanto. Tan, yeah, it's got a tanto point. It, on it, it looks like two tanto points put back to back. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I named it. And that name is caught on. It's stuck through the years. Uh, just because I had to have something to call it when I was doing the testing. Um, but we we tried all the different points, and we were looking at durability and skip angle. Mm. Now, skip angle is a big, important factor. That looks like it skipped like all hell. It doesn't. Really? No. This actually was the best design of all. It had the lowest skip angle and the highest durability huh. uh, of all the ones we tested. Now, if you could get a needle tip that wouldn't damage, it might do as well. Yeah. But I never could find one that didn't damage. Sure. We'll have to wait till different materials come the, out. This, this came... By far the, the best. And we're, one of the things we're going to look at, and I tried to determine it, and we're going to be able to find out with that high-speed camera, is I tried different sharpening profiles on this Tanto tip. Uh, single bevel on the same side, single bevel on the opposite side, and double bevel. And I was never able to tell which one truly worked the best, particularly for skip angle. What is skip angle? Well, when the, an area hits a bone, most bones are designed to redirect forces. They're there not only just hold the body up, but to mm -hmm. protect the body. So they curve multiple directions. So it's pretty rare to be able to hit a bone square. Uh, it's one of the reasons the buffalo is such a nice test uh, animal because they have very broad, wide ribs. So you can almost get a square impact or like we did, you put a protractor out here, you take a string, you measure the angle and you shoot at various angles. So the skip angle describes the angle the, of the bone, not of the, 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 ang the angle of impact between the broad head and the bone. Got it. Okay. Yes. And that's really important. Like guys hung out of tree stands and stuff, because now they're looking down at ribs. And think of the curves that are involved. Right. And it's not uncommon to, to hit one of those ribs and have the air actually ride around the outside curve of those ribs and go into the ground. And a lot of people, it happens so fast, they think they've shot through the animal. And the air never got into the chest right. cavity. It just went under the skin. Mm -hmm. I think people from eating beef ribs, hmm? you know, people get a wrong idea what a deer's rib looks like. When you actually well, take did. a deer's rib out, that son of a bitch is round. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a flat yeah, face. Most, rib, you know? most ribs are that way. Yeah. Yeah. The the bigger the animal gets, the flatter the rib. Elephant ribs got a big flat. Yeah. Giraffe's big flat. Hippo's big flat. Hmm. Buffalo, a little bit smaller flat. Ours the rhino are pretty round, flat. aren't they? Ours pretty round. Yeah. 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 The smaller the animal gets, the more round they are. 
brown bear is almost perfectly round, right? Yeah. It's real round. I feel like this would be a good uh, time to talk about a bone-busting arrow and whether it's a real thing or if it's a myth. One more, and we'll do this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your interstitial didn't work that time, Yanni. <laughs> uh, I'm fine. Because the next thing coming up, factor number 12, at the bottom of the list, because it's only important mm. when you hit a heavy bone, is an arrow mass or an arrow weight above the heavy bone threshold. Hold on, read, read that one to me again. It's arrow weight, if you want to think of it that way, above the heavy bone threshold. Okay, that, that's going to require a lot of explanation. It does, and most people have it wrong because they read what's there, and they see 650 grains, heavy bone threshold. And they think, okay, if I got 650 grains of air, it's going to break heavy bone every time. Wrong. What we found is that every broadhead, doesn't matter how poor it is or how good it is, shows an increase, a marked increase, in the bone breaching rate of heavy bone when the air mass reaches right at the 650 grain. And it's literally within a few grains, one way or the other, of the 650. And it doesn't seem to vary whether you're shooting a compound or whether you're shooting a longbow or a recurve. Would it vary if you shot it at 100 feet a second or 300 feet a second? Uh, not, not much at all. doesn't seem to make any difference at all. Uh, when we've tried it, we're going to do some more of it, get some more verification of it. But uh, at some point, it should. If we can get enough force, it should make a difference. But so far, we don't have that. Um, the basic premise is the, like we were talking about, the bones are there to protect the body. So they have all of these curves and bends, but they also have articulations. So if they move, they also are flexible. They will flex. So when the air hits, it's got to push on this bone long enough to overcome the movement of the bone, mm -hmm. the flexion of the bone before it ever starts to penetrate the bone. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And that depends on how long it's able to push the impulse of force. And it's strictly weight-related. So if you took a real poor broadhead. Bone Give me an example. <sighs> took a muzzy. Bad to the bone. Yeah, it, it's bad to the bone, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, it's, it's going to have a, a pretty low penetration in, in heavy bone it's not a great broadhead for breaching heavy bone okay and it might give you 20 percent below below the heavy bone threshold get it above the heavy bone threshold it might jump to 26 27 percent but you take the best broadheads and it doesn't matter if they're single bevel or double bevel the the best designed broadheads good mechanical advantage 2.6 or higher, seemed to be where the cutoff was on there was 2.6. Uh, below the heavy bone threshold, they might have a 70, 80, 85% bone breaching rate, yet the threshold is 100%. Hmm. And it's consistently 100%. And it doesn't matter if I shoot it with a 40-pound recurve or I shoot it with a compound. It worked. The FOC of the era had no effect on heavy bone threshold. 
strictly how long it was able to push on the bone. But once you can breach that bone, then that FOC becomes really important mm. because the post-breaching penetration is going to depend on that FOC because now that air is flying again. It's flying while it's pushing on that bone too. Yeah. But it's, it's also going to slow down the back of it, want to flex. Uh, FOC has a lot of that reduced impact paradox we were talking about. So it's going to cut down the drag a lot once we breach that bone. But that's where the heavy bone threshold comes in. It does not mean that you can take a muzzy and put it on a 650-grain era and go out and break elk shoulders. Ain't going to happen. Mm -hmm. But you put a good broadhead, quality steel, durable. Spit-shined. Stropped, honed, durable point on there that's not going to be skidding off bones everywhere. And, yes, 100%. When we looked at the penetration-maximized eras, these were all uh, EFOC eras. I don't think there were any ultras in there at all. And we we're using several different bows. We had a hundred and ninety-six, hundred and ninety-six shots. Uh eighteen percent of those with a forty pound bare formula silver recurve, traveling at a velocity of a massive hundred and nineteen feet per second, shot at twenty yards on Buffalo, and all the way up to eighty-two pound bow. So we had we had the forty pound, we had a fifty-four pound long bow, we had a uh, 70 pound, no, 64 pound longbow, 70 pound long, no, 62, 62 pound longbow, 70 pound longbow and 82 pound. And all of these errors had a hundred percent breaching rate, 196 shots on, on trophy size. Consecutive. Consecutive trophy size buffalo. What bone? This ribs. is through the ribs, which is about uh, 0.8 inch. Eight-tenths of an inch of pretty solid bone. So heavier than the scapula on the elk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, heavier than the scapula on the elk. Absolutely. And all of these errors would have been every factor on there. Penetration maximized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's do this real quick. Okay. What should What should folks be like... What should folks be using? Well, that depends on what they're willing to live with. Any factor you use, think of these as a toolbox. Mm -hmm. Any factor you pull off that list and add to your era that you're currently using is going to improve the performance of that era. But what do you mean what they're willing to live with? Well, some people won't. They have this mindset that, oh, if I shoot a 650-grain era, my trajectory is just going to boom. If I shoot, you hear it all the time, if I shoot an EFOC era, it's just going to go out there and nosedive. It doesn't. It actually shoots flatter. If you take two eras that are the exact same except for the FOC, mm -hmm. shot out of the same bow, the FOC or ultra EFOC era is going to shoot flatter. So, Because it's conserving energy from it, the paradox coming off the bow. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think it's fair to say that people's um – that people are prioritizing target they're, they're prioritizing target shooting over killing they're prioritizing hitting the animal instead of killing the animal mm -hmm. and the emphasis needs to be on killing the animal 
and there is we tried to talk about you know a little bit with some of the new stuff that we well we've got a couple of the videos out now that that Daryl and Troy did uh, the the parabola of the shot the lighter air as it goes out once it starts to lose velocity the heavier air even though it's slower doesn't do that it doesn't nosedive like that it carries it on through. So as you get to these longer ranges, it actually carries. It's not not the big drop that people are expecting when you get out there. And this is from actual data using those Doppler uh, and you, a whole series of tuned errors, all all tuned to the bows. So so we're we're starting to collect the hard data on this that is it's not what people are thinking is, and the pin gaps. If you look at the pin gaps with the light arrows, they go like this, like this. You get longer range, you get bigger and bigger pin gaps. Mm -hmm. With these heavy arrows, you don't. The pin gaps stay consistent. Stay consistent all the way down because it's carrying that parabola of the trajectory out better. You could probably explain this better than me. That My forte is from when it hits till it gets out the atom. <laughs> so uh, what would be, like in your mind, um, if you're just going to throw out some like hard and fast, okay, people should be thinking about if they're if they're focusing on killing the animal, they should be thinking about broadheads and the what. They should be thinking about these factors and what they do to their air performance, and in the what grain weight. Well, myself, 650 grains. I will not shoot an arrow below that at gain. And what weight broadhead? I try to get the highest FOC I can with the lightest shaft. So I generally am using. 300 grain plus broadheads on brass or steel inserts mm -hmm. uh, to get as much weight as I can up front, generally with sometimes with internal footing behind that in the shaft or a collar on the front uh, to help the shaft not being driven in um, and keep it from fracturing up front. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to put – what I'm trying to do is get as much weight into this little ball as I can. If you could make all the way to that era a neutron size, <laughs> sucker will penetrate through a tank. <laughs> Won't it? It'd be pretty darn close. Now, well, neutron bombs do it. Uh, yeah. Sounds like bow hunters need a science lesson. Well, a lot of it does because they've, this stuff has been sold to them in magazines for the last 70 years that. Oh, speed, 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 light, fast, multi-blade broadheads. They cut bigger holes. They bleed more. Now, I tried doing, <laughs> I tried doing some blood trail data. And uh, with the setup animals, you don't get a lot of it. But if I had to put it down, the blood trail has no bearing on the broadheads you use. What's going to matter is where you hit that animal, what you hit inside that animal. Do you have an exit wound? And where's that exit wound located? Huh. If you've got a high entrance, high exit, you could have 15 blades. You could have a poor broad tr uh, blood trail. <laughs> if you hit him in the back and it comes out his sternum, I don't care if you're shooting a field point, you're going to have a blood trail. You know, that's interesting. I had a client once uh, hit an elk with like a 338 wind mag, I believe it mm. was. Hit him high. Yeah. Eventually, we found him, but guess what? We didn't have any Not a drop of blood. blood. Same thing happens with guns. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bit of difference. Just all the blood's inside the cavity. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. got to fill up. They're bleeding, but yeah, it takes a while to fill all that chest cavity up. That's a big, that's a big pot of blood. That blood's going to collect in there, and it's going to collapse lungs. Now, so not only is he dying from loss of blood, 
but it's going to get where it's harder and harder for him to travel. And that's what you're trying to do. That's why you want, hopefully, two holes through the lungs. If you can get that, then you get that pneumothorax, you start to collapse those lungs, and he doesn't travel as far. All right, tell everybody how to find you. Well, you need to go to uh, ashbybowhunting.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. None of the people are salaried. Everybody is a volunteer, That all the officers, everything. And we'll take donations from individuals. Won't take them from archery industry. Now, if somebody works in the archery industry and wants to donate as an individual, but it's not going to buy them any special access or special treatment in any way. And if you, okay, and then just to get the, so if you want to see, so, so you guys at Grizzly Stick make a point that is the closest, like it's the closest manifestation of what you would argue to be the point. Well, we were talking last night. If, if I'm picking a point to hunt with today, there are only two. Now, there might be some others that haven't been tested yet. So I don't want to rule them out. But ones that have been tested thoroughly that I know work is only two that I would use. One is the Ashby Broadhead, which looks just about like that. And the other one uh, is the Tough Head, uh, the 300-grain Tough Head, the original one. And because those work. Now, I did a lot of testing with very narrow broadheads where I were taking these and working them down uh, to well below an inch diameter because you got a lot of laws that say you got to have an inch diameter broadhead or inch and an eighth or something like that in various places. Works just fine. It kills buffalo. It'll kill whitetails. Mm-hmm. Can't necessarily go the other way around, but, you know, people miss that thing. And like I said, I like to carry one arrow. I don't care what I encounter. I'm ready to shoot it. Uh, do you guys get many donations? We're just really getting started with them coming in, but we're getting some coming in. And we're in the process now of, of doing some grant requests from, you know, like uh, Dallas Safari Club and people like that. And, uh, and, and you don't feel that's going to lead to industry manipulation? Nope. It's going to be, it's gonna have to be a grant and no strings attached, period. Got it. If there's strings attached, we ain't doing it. We've had some people in the archery industry want to donate. And no, not, so you're not, not like, not those, you're not like those guys, the tobacco industry hires to show the tobacco is <laughs> no. good for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ashby bow hunting foundation. Yes. Go to it. Look at it. Donate. If you want to find out, if you want to support research that finds out what really works, what doesn't work uh, and, and what the money goes for, like I said, there's no salaries involved is buying the equipment. Like we're buying this high speed camera. We bought this. Yep. Brought these uh, Doppler radar chronographs. Do you do uh, Q&As with people? Like if they go like, hey, what about this? Do you reply to them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got a place in there that they can ask questions, and, and we'll give them answers, you know, what answers we can give them. And the guys volunteer a lot of time. They uh, they build, even to the point of building up air setups for people, um, you know, that, that are going to hunt a Cape Buffalo or something and have never done it. Um, so they actually do a, hand, a lot of hands-on for individuals mm-hmm. too. And, and it's called ask ashby but ask ashby but yeah. it's, it's it's routed to whichever one of us yeah. on the board is is most qualified to answer the question because my hands are getting where i can hardly yeah. do anything with them if they can answer it they answer it. 
If they can't, it comes to me. <laughs> yeah, got it. And if I can't answer it, I tell them I don't know. You know, that's, we're doing testing on it, or, hey, that's something we're going to add to the testing. That's a good, good idea. You know, you just, uh, you know, people are good about doing that. And, and we have become involved with uh, one of the big things with Texas Parks and Wildlife. We're affiliated with them. So we put on programs teaching this type of stuff to the bow hunter education instructors. So we train them in that, and uh, we work with FAZA, the Professional Hunter Association of South Africa, and the, the one in Namibia also, and we're trying to set up one in Zambia, uh, working with that. Uh, we supplied a lot of information that went over to Russia, where they legalized bow hunting last year, uh, and looking at Germany, looking at some other places that were trying to assist them with information. Botswana. With the data we have, Botswana. And uh, so we're trying to, you know, reach out that way. So we not only try to work with government agencies, and just recently well, we sent out letters to every state fish and game department telling them what we're doing with Texas Parks and Wildlife and seeing if we can assist them. And we've had replies back from, I don't know, what, two or three, four? Absolutely. You know, there's just not a lot of people that have information for those guys that want to go out and educate people. And, and so when we've been able to supply that, information for them they've been starving for it it almost seems like a lot of the guys and just they're looking for ways to better educate their students when they're going through this the hows and whys of what's going on besides yeah. just shooting them thanks doc appreciate it welcome yeah My man pleasure. thanks ashby bowhunting foundation check them out donate <laughs> <laughs> send a donation all right everybody Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.